Flynn. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Good to be here. I got to admit, I'm feeling pretty good with this <laughs> limoncello you're pumping through me. This was made for this purpose alone. All right. You got to tell me how you made it again. So you went to the distillery? Um, so no, actually I had a little bit of, I think some grape spirits that was left over from a project I was working on. So I took maybe, I don't know, a half a gallon or something. Pretty much took the half a gallon, peeled a bunch of fresh lemons, trying not to get any sort of pith in there. Let it sit on that spirits probably for about 30 days to really extract that color. The pith is that white part. It's the white part. So that's very tedious, I would guess, to extract. It is, unless you just kind of use like a vegetable peeler and you kind of go lightly on the skin. Almost like you're zesting it. Exactly. Okay. And then you just, how many lemons are you doing? Um, I I think I probably went overboard with it. I think the recipe. It's very lemony. Yeah, exactly. But it's (laughs) limoncello, so it makes sense. Yeah, you know, and just the times I've been to Italy. I've always been like really into limoncello and it just seems one of those kind of things that's very the thing to do like in any sort of restaurant and on the last journey through Spain we came across like this French chef who had like all sorts of like homemade liqueurs and stuff and I remember the limoncello he had at one of the meals it was exquisite and I was like wow I really should try to like mimic that kind of limoncello and what do you think did you succeed i did okay good (laughs) i would agree don't they usually have it after the meal in italy after the meal but why not we could have had some vermouth or something i had dinner already i don't know about you i did too yeah so so this is dessert i'm about to segue into like the second and third dessert maybe with some bottles of wine here yeah yeah you have a bunch of bottles of wine on the table i'm Mm -hmm. excited to get into them We'll get to all that. Of course. Uh, I just want to offer you a cheers and a happy birthday, though. Cheers. Thank you. Salud. You just turned, dare I say, 50. I just did. What's it like on the other side? Feels the same way as before the the big age hit me. I think I'm still mentally uh, 23, physically about 30. Yeah, I don't want to say anymore. My dad had a great (laughs) saying where I, when I was a kid, I asked him about getting older and what it was like. He said, you don't really feel like you change that much. You just wake up one day, look in the mirror and think, who's this old guy looking back at me in the mirror? <laughs> right. And when you're 18, turning 30 seems like, oh, my God. Yeah. Crazy. I, I don't even think I've pondered 50 yet. Yeah. I don't think it's really that bad. It doesn't really feel anything different. I, I'm just an AARP member now. Oh, so it's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, I signed up $10 off of my uh, phone bills each month and get discounts on cruises. Why not? Cheap movie tickets. Wow, that's amazing. I was talking to a friend last night. He was telling me that he talked to his grandfather, who's like 93 years old and he, or even older. And he's like, what's the secret to life? And the grandfather said, a good pair of shoes, a comfortable bed, and a piece of pie. A good piece of pie. And I was like, what does he mean exactly by that good piece of pie? It's like so just subjective. It covers so many like things. Like, is it a sweet piece of pie? Or yeah. is it a sweet, quote unquote, piece of pie? Did he clarify? No. The grandfather never really said. That's the mystery and the riddle. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I definitely agree with the first one. When traveling, my traveling mentor taught me this. It's like your number one thing should be to take care of your feet. Right. Because when your feet get tired, you get tired, you get grumpy. So I never travel in sandals or anything like that. Always. I'm the guy with the the tennis shoes on or the big hiking boots because I want to last all day. (laughs) But it's true. You know, aging, I've always enjoyed getting older. I spent my youth worrying about it and because there's so much unknown when you're young in college, what am I going to do for a living? How is my life going to come together? Yada, yada. But the older I've got, the more I've gotten to know myself and been able to enjoy things. And like we were just talking about before we came on, there are so many options of things you can do in life. It's really all about your mindset. I really believe that once I got into my mid twenties, I feel like I really got to know myself even things I do now that I don't necessarily prefer, 
I know myself well enough to be mentally prepared for it and right. handle it. So I've actually enjoyed getting older, aside from the fact physically you lose some things. Yeah, but at the same time, I think you just kind of stick to what you can and what you know and like try not to overdo it. There's no sense in putting so much weight across your back or above your head anymore. I mean, think of like more age-related physical readiness and fitness. Like I'm not 23 years old anymore. I don't need to try to outdo the other 23-year-old next to me in the squat rack. And then one thing I really learned with age is that um, – which is still really kind of hard to practice just as I age, because once again, the older I get, the more I realize how little I do actually know um, and how much I still have to work on. But the thing I've, I'm learning is if I live in the past, I become depressed. If I live in the future, I become very anxious. So I'm just trying to live in the present moment. That's really it. It's good advice. That's yeah, all you can do. That's all I can do. Do you remember any visions when you were young of what you wanted to be when you grew up or anything like that? <laughs> funny thing was I was really young. I was like really into the church. Um, the church? The church, the Catholic church. You were raised Catholic. I was born and raised Irish Catholic, Joseph Patrick Michael Flynn III. Wow. So so you were raised by the ruler. I was raised by the ruler. I was raised by a family that faith came first, first and foremost. And so I was like really into the church, went through all the steps. Confirmed? Confirmed, of course. Used to go on retreats and was, you know, granted the gift of tongues. You know, it's like, hmm. Really? Wait, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, is you that like of... a high school makeout joke? Or yeah. what? <laughs> <laughs> Once again, it's back to like the grandfather's advice. You know, the sweet piece of pie. You're not going to explain <laughs> it. Okay, <fair> enough. <laughs> but you know, when I was young, I was really into like really big rigs, also like eighteen wheelers. So I thought I'd be like a truck driving priest. I would drive across the country, if not around the world, preaching the gospel and hauling big loads. Truck driving <laughs> priest. That is the most specific vision I think I've ever heard. And Obviously, you're not a priest now. No. So what led to your exit from the church? I think going to the military and going through some stuff, coming back, looking for answers and being told that there is no rhyme or reason. You just have to have faith. You just have to believe that things happen for a reason. And I wasn't I wasn't happy with that answer. But you were significantly older at that point in your 20s. Yeah. You know, I, I was practicing still pretty well, like early in my military career. And then after going through a few situations, I began to really like question my faith and why people just believe blindly in this. But what I've also learned is like, there's one thing you can never take away from a person. It's that's their faith. Like that's the thing that they will die with. Like they'll, they'll die hating their family and significant others and races and sexes of people, but they will still hold on to their faith, believing that that's the thing that guided them to like this point of a peaceful or a harmful or hurtful death or something. It's a very powerful thing. It is. I mean, belief in general, but religion as well. Exactly. And to your point, people, well, I, I, I don't know if they look at it as they're just invested in it. They know what they believe it truly in their heart. Right. You have to respect it. You have to. It seems like you're more of the Buddhist variety these days looking around your house here. I try to practice. I am a meat eater, but I try to eat meat peacefully. Yeah. Not the, ravenously. The one thing I really like about Buddhism is that there's no deity. There is no deity. In fact, it's you are kind of the deity. It's it's more of a self-improvement method than a, a worship yeah. method. I really love that because we can all work on ourselves and get better. And by working on ourselves, we make things around us right. better. 
for me too as well i i have no disrespect for anybody that's religious my sister is very religious used to lectern at the catholic church i was raised catholic confirmed william joseph joseph mcgoff <laughs> joseph uh, joseph i went for the double j wow yeah, i don't know if it was a lack of creativity or what it was but yeah i picked joseph as my saint but like you i had key questions i couldn't get answers to right one was just a contradiction of of how an omnipotent being could give us free will. I never really understood how a, a, a being that knew everything, including what was going to happen and what has happened, could then give us choice. Right. And that was something I really struggled with at that time. I don't think we need to get into it now. Maybe there's some explanations I've learned or ways that could be true. But at the time, it was very, it, it really put the brakes on it for me. Yeah. And I would, as an eighth grader, ask these questions. I went to Catholic school from fourth grade through high school yep. and just could never really get the answers I wanted. And my parents weren't super strict on it. Right. My mom was more of a twice a year Catholic or yep. certain times she would go on a roll where we were going a lot. My dad never went to church, not even on Christmas. We would go as a family, but he would stay back to prepare for the Christmas Eve festivity. Right. And of course. God knows what he was doing, <laughs> but can't blame him. Maybe he just needed a break from us. Yeah, it's funny. So what age did you go into the military? Uh, I went in at 18, so I graduated high school at 18, and a month later, I was going into the military. Why did you make that decision? Uh, I was an absolute fuck-up. You were? Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Take us through it if you want. Well, I mean, parents went through a divorce when we were younger, got a, basically taken custody of by my grandparents for a few years. That was down in Miami, that right? That was down in Miami. And I saw, I, I had a lot of structure with my grandparents because he was a World War II vet. She was a Navy brat. They raised kids, still lived next door to her, her mom. Basically, family was everything. Structure was very, very much like in place. Even on the summer days when we had no school, we were still being woken up at 0, 530 to get up because there was stuff to do. We had to be, we had to be outside working. Would he talk that way? Zero five thirty. That was zero dark 30. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Very much. That's even earlier than you probably got up for school. <laughs> it was absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're in it, just like the military, like you hate every minute of it because it's, it's structure. It's like, it's keeping you in line. It's holding you accountable. And that's what my grandparents offered to me for like the first time in my life. Because when my sister and I were young, like we were growing up with like two hippie Woodstock parents that were two kids that did not belong together. They had really good, healthy drug habits and really just bad coping skills and communication skills. So we picked a lot of that up throughout our lives. And then our grandparents came along and took us on and kind of guided us. And then when I had the choice to either stay with them going into high school or to moving with my dad, who was still kind of like a, a swinging bachelor, I chose to move up to Hollywood, Florida, which is about 20 minutes north of where I was living, to go live with him. And pretty much there, I had absolutely no structure whatsoever. I mean, I was just running around like a like a crazy man. As a high schooler. As a high schooler. Hollywood's a cool place. It is a very cool Beautiful place. Beautiful beach. Yes. A lot of things to do, a lot of trouble to get into as a high schooler. I could see that. So yeah, you know, like my my freshman and sophomore year, I was still at Shamanad, which was like an all boys Catholic school. And then the junior year, the all girls Catholic school decided to merge with Shamanad, so it became Shamanad Madonna because of just funding difficulties. So for the first time, like in two years, I had girls in class with me. Wow. Yeah. Wait, hold on. I got to stop you there because I don't know <laughs> if we've ever talked about this. I went to an all guys high school as well. So I'll, I'll tell you my experience. I'm, I'm interested to hear yours. It Halfway through your high school, they merged? 
junior year they finally merged together so freshman and sophomore year was all boys that must have been a frenzy man oh it was like none of us knew what to do like we're all knee deep in puberty and just raging hot and then here come all these girls that are formed or still forming and And prior to that my experience you're in class in an all-boys school it doesn't matter what you do there's no one to impress you're (laughs) there's a lot of farting a lot of jokes a lot of everyone's just really loose yep but then hang around till after school and the girls show up and everyone's a little bit different. Yeah. Well, so then my junior year, about two or three months into it, I ended up getting expelled from said school. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So then I got sent to public school. Oh, wait. What did you do? Um, we were in class. And so it, this, this story goes way, way back. But there was this girl that liked me when we were in the sixth grade because we went to the same Catholic school in the sixth grade and I never gave her the time of the day. So I think she may have held on to this for the longest time, but junior year, she's sitting in front of me and I remember taking this piece of paper and stuffing it full of chalk and we had this nun that was teaching us this lesson and she was like, she had lived in Japan for like 22 years, right? So she graded our papers in Japanese. She wrote on the board like lessons in Japanese and she was like talking something about like current current po- politics and she was like basically like our president Jimmy Carter and I was like I just started laughing and I was like how stupid can this woman be so I ended up taking this piece of paper and throwing it across the room and I hit her in the face and knocked her glasses off and she collapsed the teacher I'm, the teacher is this nun like so I hit a nun right oh my God, <laughs> with a piece of paper full of chalk so she fell to the ground and started bawling and the whole class just gasped they're like oh my god like who did that so the dean of students comes in and he was already after my ass for a bunch of shit, right? And he's like, I'm going to suspend this whole class if somebody doesn't step up and tell me who did this. And the girl who I would not give the time of day to in the sixth grade turned around and pointed right at me. And he looked at me and like he had this like twinkle in his eyes. And he's like, he pulled his like belt buckle up over his belly. And he's like, Flynn, I finally got you. Let's go. He had been waiting oh, for that man. day. And he pulled me out of the room and just sat me down. And he just had the best time ever calling like my, my dad first. And then my dad basically on the phone was like, I don't want to see him. I don't want to talk to him. Call his grandparents. So my grandmother came and picked me up. And my dad essentially was like, I don't want to hear a word from you for like a week. Just leave me alone. So I sat there just kind of like in this state of limbo, like knowing I had really fucked up. And, uh, you're like, you have to go to South Broward High School now. So talk about a change of scenery. Here I was kind of like in this well-to-do Catholic school with good families. And I get sent to basically just like the school of derelicts. And it was like such such a, an exhilarating thing for me to actually be put into because I loved it. I loved every second of it. Really? I found my people immediately. I found you're like, the yeah, this is where I belong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but probably not good for your overall trajectory. So actually what was able to happen there is there was like a really good art program there. Uh, this lady named Carla Stiles, they called her the spider lady because she always dressed up every year as like this witch. And she had this giant like classroom. They right? called her the spider lady because yeah. she dressed like a witch? Well, during Halloween, she dressed like a witch, right? And um, she would always put like cobwebs up everywhere in the room. Like she would go all out. Like I swear this woman basically like how some people go crazy for Christmas. This woman went crazy for Halloween. I know know Halloween people. Yeah. Yeah, That makes sense. But the really cool thing is, is like if you were a good artist, she had these little studios that were set up like in this one corner of the, of the classroom. So like one was a closet and one was like, I mean, one was like just kind of like this partitioned off thing. So 
depending on which grade you were in and like what kind of level of art you were in, you could get like one of these little studios. And I got in there right away and basically I was just like subjected to like normal classroom art. So she started seeing me because I used to like to draw art a lot when I was in Catholic school. Like I would draw comic books with friends and stuff like that. So she saw that I actually actually had some interest in art and a background. So she like really took interest in me and kind of guided me through and saw that I was a really good freestyle and freehand artist. So eventually I got put into my own studio. Back in the day, being my age, I was into some like older hardcore punk bands and Minor Threat was one of them. And they had one of these album covers where basically Ian MacKay was like kind of sitting on the front of the uh, album cover just with his kind of hands or his head down, his hands crossed like over his lap. And I think it was the Out of Step album or something. And so I had to do this project. So I basically drew that, put stenciling on it. She just by chance ended up going to some arts like show in Fort Lauderdale a month or so later. And she submitted that picture. Well, about Two or three months later, I end up coming back into school. Well, I was still in school, but I end up coming into her class one day. And she's like, I have a really cool thing to show you. This letter from one of the senators in Fort La- or from Florida saying that there was a few artists that were chosen to be given full ride scholarships to the Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale. And I was one of them for that. Wow. That was super cool. And so I went through my senior year knowing that I had like this scholarship available to me. And I just screwed around. I mean, I skipped school all the time. And I remember I ended up getting into alcohol and girls and a little bit of drug use back in the day. And my friends and I were probably hanging out at the Intercoastal one day, drinking 40s and smoking cigars, and just got a little too shit house and came home and passed out in my bed. And then the phone rings, and it's the Navy recruiter. And he's like, is this Joe Flynn? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, hey, like this is Petty Officer So-and-So from Navy Recruiting Office. And I was just like, fuck off. And I hung <laughs> up on him. So then I pass out and I'm drooling. And then 5.30, 6 o'clock, I hear my door open and there's like the silhouette of my dad. And he like kind of comes in and he's, he just like looks at me and he's like, he's like, Psh. and I'm like, what? And he like throws like these four pieces of paper at me on my bed. And he's like, you're failing four classes. He's like, you're never going to like amount to anything. Like what a piece of shit. And I was like, holy crap. Like, man, taking something for granted. But I realized like I'm really screwing the pooch here. So I panicked and I kind of had this like really quick epiphany about where I was going and what I was willing to do and where I was probably going to end up with wanting to do or wanting to do what I was going to do. Like I was just going to kind of screw myself. So I actually ended up going into the Navy recruiter's office the next day and standing tall and telling them who I was. And they just kind of snickered and they're like, so you want to join the Navy, huh? (laughs) And I joined the Navy that day. Wow. But you were still offered the scholarship. Yeah. And I turned it down. So so can can I have a little more of that? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's really good, man. It's really, really good. Are you going to, you can't sell this. I'm guessing. This is all I have. Well, you'll make more, I hope. Well, yeah. I'd go into a different tax bracket at that point then. Mm. Yeah. I see. Yeah, you want to stay low on that tree exactly. if you can. Exactly, yeah. But I, I never knew you drew. Yeah, yeah. I was really into it when I was like – it was funny. I was, I was really big into like a per- impersonations when I was young. And I was also really big into drawing and it was, I was always like really into the comics. So, you know, the daily comics and especially the Sunday comics, I would sit there religiously at like my grandfather's desk and just try to like draw the boxes out 
freehand in the newspaper in the newspaper like I wouldn't trace ever I just try to draw things as straight as I could and just kind of like whatever and then got really into comics for the longest time just tried to like follow along and like make my own comic books and then there was this one kid who I've looked him up a couple times uh, in my adulthood his name was Talon Dunning and he was one of my friends in school and he still does like this really kind of crazy graphic art but this kid would like draw I mean he there's no one that could draw like him. And of course I would try to rip him off as much as I could, but we were like really good friends. And then unfortunately that was like in middle school. And when we got to high school, like I became maybe one of the kind of the quote unquote cool kids. And I ended up picking on that kid and I lost him as a friend, but not without him like throwing a kick at me one time that landed. This kid literally had like legs that were like 10 feet long. He was so tall. (laughs) I know the feeling. Yeah. And he was, (laughs) (laughs) I'm all leg bro. (laughs) And I just remember like how bad I hurt that guy because we were like pretty good close friends and we drew together and he was definitely awkward. I'm not going to lie. Like I was a pretty awkward kid too when I was young and we kind of found power at each other and just, you know, it's a stupid kid shit when, so, you, when you get to that point. Yeah, I identify with what you're saying. I I really have nothing in common with your story in the sense that I was a total loser most of <laughs> a, a dork. I had friends and I was athletic. I played sports. But I was not one of the cool kids. And I would often get made fun of or picked on. Actually, fun fact, when I was younger, I went by BJ because my name is William Joseph and my dad's name is William. He went by Bill. My parents in some night thought it would be a great idea to nickname me BJ. Oh, my God. And you can obviously see how that went pretty wrong. When I went to high school, I switched schools. so I was able to change my name. But prior to that, the immaturity of grade school. So I was the subject of many jokes. But... I found myself would turn on that if I could sense someone was even lower than me, I would at that age take the opportunity to, oh, well, I'm going to pick on them. Right. And yeah, I, I feel a lot of guilt and regret for that because you're literally doing, it's just the most immature thing you can do. You're yeah. feeling this way because of something and you're turning it on. How do you grapple with this part of your life today? Well, I mean, I will definitely and freely admit that I was a dork. I was definitely, definitely one of the dorky kids. And I think the saving grace for me was that I had an older sister who was pretty cool and liked amongst most people. And then I had a cousin who was like a big jock. And so just being his cousin, I think I already had, I I fell into the graces of some of the people that really mattered. And so like, oh, he's Paul Gentili's cousin. So that kind of saved me. But now like thinking back to that, like just, it's stupid childhood stuff. And it shit is just, just immaturity. I consider myself still a a really giant dork and socially awkward. And uh, I can confirm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I really have to prop myself up a lot of times before I go out and like converse with people, but limoncello never hurts. Well, I think you did a good job. That's how we met. We met at a, well, ordinary fellow. Right. Kind of at a bar, but you have this crazy high school experience. Yep. Now you're going into the Navy. If I remember correctly, you were a medic. I was a medic. So that's not very a traditional track. Yeah, so I had to take my ASVAB, which is basically kind of like the entry test to get into the military, and it kind of tells you like where you're at, what what job would best suit you. Um, and I came back as actually being able to go into kind of like nuclear medicine, so being on a sub or something like that, or just like nuclear kind of capacity, or into medicine. And all of my uncles, everyone in my family were was Navy, cousins, uncles, all commanders and captains and pilots and stuff like that. The only person who did not go into the Navy was my father. So they were all forcing me to go into the like OCS, so officer candidate school. 
But my grandfather was an enlisted man, and I respected him the most. So I was like, I'm just going to follow his footsteps, which, you know, in retrospect, sucked because being an enlisted man in any sort of service is always the worst. So I went in and got accepted, went to uh, boot camp in Great Lakes, and then went to Navy Corps School, which is also in Great Lakes. And then I remember one day we were kind of like having to pick like the MOSs that we want to go into, which is like our, you know, our dream positions, our dream bases. And one of our instructors walked in and he had spent some time with the Marines and he had this set of camouflage gear on. And we were all like, whoa, how cool is that? And so he's like, this is an 8404. This is a Navy corpsman that goes and spends time with the Marines. And like you travel with the Marines and you do whatever. And I was like, that's what I'm going to (sighs) do. like famous stupid last words like yeah I want to go spend time with the jarheads but yeah so graduated from Navy Corps school then got sent to field medical service school which is basic uh, boot camp number two but Marine Corps style boot camp so what did they have you do train and go through um, more of a concentrated style of Marine Corps boot camp so our boot camp at the time Navy was like right around uh, I guess 11 or 12 weeks I think Marine Corps boot camp at the time was about 16 weeks. Field medical service training was right around like 11 weeks. And so we got thrown a pair of camouflage gear. We got thrown back into the barracks. We had our heads shaved and we learned everything that Marines do. So we learned how to work with firearms and we learned like battle tactics and scout sniping and patrolling and uh, survival skills and going on these long ass humps, which were just long walks with heavy gear. So the first one they take you on is only about six miles, but you're only carrying about 35 pounds. Eventually you get to the point where you walk like 32 miles with like 80, 80 to 90 pounds on your back. Wow. Yeah. Makes backpacking look like, Oh yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Well, hold on. So I, I skipped a part here because I'm curious, you went to boot camp right out of this high school life that you were living. Yep. So did they just stand you up straight right away or were you trying to be this kind of cool guy still and and what did you have to do physically for boot camp well i had never left miami i had never left florida until i was 18 and i remember i i was flown out of uh, miami international airport got on the air i got this on this jet the first time in my life and i remember like we were pulling out and we're sitting there taxiing and just this sense of excitement rushed over me And I remember like looking down the runway and thinking to myself, like, I will never stop traveling. I will never look back. I will never come back here again. So they flew me into Chicago. I got off at, what is the airport there? O'Hara. Remember walking out and there, I had like these orders in my hand and they're like, you know, go find like the, the Navy recruiting or whatever, the vet center. So I walk in and I'm like, just kind of like whatever dipsy doing. And this guy's like, who are you? And I was like, uh, Joe Flynn. And they're like, you will talk to me like in this manner and blah, blah, blah. And just starts dressing me up and down, like in the middle of the airport. And he finds this square, like literally like in the path of the most traffic. And he's like, you will stand at attention in this square until I come find you. Do you understand? This is in the airport terminal? Yeah. And I was like, what? And he's like, do you understand me? And I was like, oh, yeah. And he's like, yeah, it's sir. And I was like, oh, okay. Everyone's looking at you. Oh, yeah, I did. So here I am like shit like it's time to like guess i guess do this so i'm standing at, at attention and finally he comes and finds me and loads me on this van and i think they do this stuff intentionally like they they try to draw things out as long as they can and they try to put you through as much mental stress even before the stress begins and i remember showing up to great lakes naval training center like at midnight one o'clock in the morning and so they pull me up 
like there's like a few lights on, there's this long pathway and they're like, get out, go down through that door, like through this gate, go down that pathway and walk to that door. So I just start walking, I start walking and then finally I get to the door and this door opens up and this motherfucker just comes out and starts yelling at me. And I'm like, what the? He's like, get out of here, do this, do this. And I have to do a breathalyzer immediately and they're like, drop your bag and do this. And all of a sudden like they hurry me into like this giant hall and there's like, 300 guys sitting here that look just absolutely pissed off and just angry. I mean, these guys have been getting messed with for a while now. I can feel it. And he's like, it's nice of you to finally show up. Your shipmates here have been waiting for you for three hours at attention. And you're like, just fall in. And so all of a sudden, like they immediately just start laying the stress on you and they rush us through and like you're in processing and you're like you're getting all of your gear and like you're dropping off your paperwork and you're starting to get your first round of shots and getting your head shaved i was just gonna say they shave your head yeah man. right there yeah and then you know finally by the time you actually get back to your barracks i think it was bright lights everywhere everybody's yelling there's like not one person yelling like every single person that can yell at you <laughs> is yelling at you as closely to your face as they can <laughs> <laughs> And so finally you get back to your barracks and they stand you at attention like for like another 15, 20 minutes. And you're like, dude, I have no idea what's happening. And they're like, when I say like rack, you rack. They come in, they go rack and you just jump into bed. And this is like at 2.33 o'clock in the morning now. You're a stranger in a strange land. You have no idea what's going on. You're in this room with like 80 to 100 different dudes. And then you hear all like this, just these different sounds. And then literally, I don't think, I mean, I even close my eyes and then probably like right around 4.30, 5 o'clock, they all start marching in with trash cans and turning lights on. Banging and, the trash cans oh, man. and stuff? Thro- not banging them, throwing them down the aisle. Is it a new shift of people or do these it guys is, not these, sleep? These are going to be like your new company commanders. So they don't sleep either. They don't care. Well, they've been sleeping. Like, oh, I see. So. They're like waiting to like onboard their new recruits. And so, dude, from that point forward, they just tried to mentally and physically exhaust you as much as they can because what they're trying to do is they're trying to take a bunch of just individuals and break them down into one cohesive unit and make them an individual or one just like single unit that thinks the same way, that acts the same way, that responds the same way. And that's hard because you have all walks of life. Were you physically prepared for this? Did Absolutely they, not. I mean, you're doing like 100, 200 push-ups a day, 500 a day. Oh, what? man. Like, they just – I mean, they'll run you through the ringer. Like, you're doing burpees. You're doing eight-count bodybuilders, jumping jacks, uh, flying roaches, air squats. You know, you're running the pull-up bars. You're doing monkey climbers. I mean, you're doing anything and everything ever you could ever imagine. And they had this thing where they would call it, let's make it rain. So they'd make you put all of your gear on. So you would put like your dungarees on and like your blue tops. And then they would, you'd put sweatsuits on over that. And then you'd, like, you'd put your pea coat on over that and then your hoodie. And then they would close the windows and they're like, let's make it rain. And they would PT you literally until there was like condensation dripping from the ceilings. From, you're like, sweating under all your clothes yeah, and stuff. Dude. Oh yeah. my God. And then after that, you'd be sitting there sweating and they would just do rack drills. So they would just come through and like literally turn your racks upside down, rip them apart and tell you, you have two minutes to put your racks back together Uh, and if you didn't have perfect squares and everything by the time like they came back they would just just keep doing this to you you'd go all night you'd go all day so what was your mentality through all this were you it's oh it's a show i'm just gonna go with it or were you emotionally reacting to it oh i emotionally reacted i broke down a few times i was scared shitless because they just put the fear of god into you and like this is right at the first gulf war our desert storm 
time. Uh, yeah, what year was this? 91. 91, okay. So, yeah. It was crazy. They just needed people that could actually fall into the position and perform. But you, you did it. I did it. And so you, you got buff, I'm guessing. You got strong. I looked pretty good. I mean, it's funny because, like, I'd played a little bit of high school football, like, throughout the years. I was just, like, once again, such a, like, a lackey that I would go through things and then I'd go, like, halfway through a season. So I'd wrestle and I'd, be, I'd get bored with it. And I'd quit and I'd like play football and like, you know, get bored with it and quit. And my dad's just like, can you like stick with something, please? And I was like, dude, I just like sticking with the things I like sticking with, which were like surfing and hanging out on the beach and thinking I was more of a badass than I really was. And youthful bliss, man. The military was a gut check and it taught it. I think it taught all of us a lot of things quickly. And some of us were ready for it, and some of us weren't. And I, I was just very thankful that I had like a really good support family from like or a support system from my family that would write me regularly. And my grandfather would like write these really meaningful letters to me because he, once again, he was a Navy guy. He had been through it. He had been through it. And he's just like, just keep your mouth shut, keep your head up, your eyes open, ears open, and just go for it. Do you feel you still have some of that with you? Something you learned during that time? Oh, absolutely. I have so much from the military still. Just the ethic the structure. I like things to be in place. I like, to, I like to have control of things. But at the same time, the military teaches that you have no control. You just have to kind of improvise, adapt, and overcome, which I think really does well in the way of winemaking. Yes. When so. We'll get to winemaking. Of course. Uh, <laughs> quick story. Uh, we, uh, gro- you know, growing up, we had to read books in school, one of which was The Lords of Discipline. Uh-huh. I don't know if you're ever familiar with that book no. or but it's a story about exactly what you described, new recruits going into this military school and just the crazy amount of hazing that goes on. Yeah. And it's a pretty good book. I haven't read it in years, but I pledged a fraternity in college and our pledge master was an ROTC. Virginia Tech was a huge ROTC school. He was hoping to be a Navy SEAL. So I think he was practicing with us. And we had to do the craziest shit, pledging the fraternity. We would have what's called basement calls. And it was, again, trying to form this cohesive unit. But he would call one of us. And there were probably 20-some pledges. And then that one person was responsible for activating a chain of communication to get us all from campus to the fraternity house in 20 minutes or less, which never happened. (laughs) And because we were late, then they could haze us. So they would take us down the basement, line us up head down, stand up straight. Sometimes we would do PT, but it would be a lot more humiliating. They'd make us do wall sits yeah. and pick dingleberries. Oh yeah. If you can know this motion, yep, like exactly. And so you're moving your hands, but they're making you, they're humiliating you. They would make us chug. They would do this really kind of effed up game where they would buy a bunch of mad dog 2020s and we would all stand in a line and there'd be a huge pile of them and they would start with the first person and you would drink and then pass it. But the less you drank, the more you would screw the people down the line right. as the first guy and as it went. So they would be harassing us like, if you only drink that little bit, think of all the people you're screwing. So it would really entice people to chug a lot and to be heroes. The people that were randomly at the front of the line would just start literally falling face first, you know, wasted. And they would just pull their bodies out and move everyone down. And it's like, do you want to screw your pledge brothers too? And so it was, it was crazy. And he was really hell bent on this military career. Now I'm wondering if military is kind of like fraternity where 
back in the day, they got away with it. Like none of this stuff would ever fly today, right? I'm pretty sure if I went back to Virginia Tech, the same fraternity, and talked to the freshman pledges, they would have nothing like these kind of stories. No, like when we went to core school, which is basically like our medical training, that was co-ed. It was very like by the books. Once again, we're just getting out of boot camp. So guys are discovering girls again and vice versa. There's relationships that are starting, but we're, it's very intensive. It's like six days a week of 10 hours a day of, of medicine. You're learning how to become registered nurse or a, a combat medic or whatever. So we were like, basically when I got out, I already had certification essentially as uh, EMTP, so a paramedic. When I actually got out and moved back to Florida years later, just to kind of like blow off some steam and like figure out what I wanted to do next, I tried to go get a job as a paramedic. And the state of Florida is like, you're only nationally certified. Like, actually, you're, you're, you can't do anything legally. Like, you can't even legally wipe an ass until you go through registry in this regard. So you would have to go back to school after being a military Which was medic? Just an absolute blow to the ego because of the stuff that we had gone through and the campaigns and the stuff that we saw. I was telling you, I think about this before where there were situations where I was like traking people and doing just tension pneumo, tension thorax pneumo, like re, like releases to where we had sucking chest wounds and we we're putting like an ID card with a three-way valve on it so we can allow like inflow and outflow. So um, you're seeing people in really bad shape. Like we had some pretty messed up people. Yeah. And so to rewind a little bit, after leaving um, Corps school, we got sent to our first Marine Corps unit. And that was day one of boot camp again, because you're confident. Like you graduated from boot camp, you're graduating from like your A school, which is like now we're all Navy Corpsmen, right? But now we go to the fleet. And I got sent to a unit of a bunch of hard charging, salty motherfuckers that had gone through a bunch of campaigns and here I am this brand new boot corpsman that did not deserve a lick of respect from these guys because they had no idea who I was and they let you know just how much of a piece of shit you are <laughs> and you really had to put your time and your effort and you had to earn it through these guys and they would haze the shit out of you and there were times like we would go do like these you know six day training exercises getting ready for the next campaign that we were going to and like literally like six days, you probably get like three hours of sleep because you're just constantly moving and you're doing like these live fire exercises and stuff. And then if you piss somebody off at the end of that campaign or during it, there would be the timeout, which they called it. So we would find like this one back end of a barrack and you would take a timeout with the person that you have an issue with and you'd get a pair of boxing gloves or you go bare knuckle and they'd all just kind of hang out. We haven't even gone to the armory yet to clean our weapons and you go to the back and you fight the shit out. You'd fight. You'd fight. That's you'd some just, Hemingway stuff, you'd man. You'd just beat this shit out of each other, and you'd have like three one-minute rounds, and then when it was done, it was done. Did you participate? I in had these? a few of those. Absolutely. Really? I got my ass handed to me a few times, and I had him like I handed somebody's ass to them a few times as well. But it just teaches you, like, because you know, like when it was done, it was done. Yeah. And then as you go through more of those, they respect you more and more because you're not afraid to take the lickings and you're like willing to give the lickings as well. Yeah. And then they see you as like one of them. And that's like the thing about the Marines, like they're a very unique group of individuals. They are some just. So they're the ones that took out Ob uh, Bin Laden, right? The Marines? Yeah. Oh, I think that was the SEALs. The SEALs. The SEALs, okay. yeah. Yeah. But Marines are always the first ones on the beach. 
you know, and the Marines, uh, I actually ended up with, with Stay Platoon, which is surveillance target and acquisition. So we were basically forward observers and scout snipers. So we were like with a rapid deployment unit. So we've moved around as civilians. But then when we got to a certain place, we got our gear and our weapons and we became military men. It was very interesting because like being in such a small unit like that, I wasn't able just to be a corpsman. I couldn't just carry like a unit one in my pistol. I had to be one of them. I had to like train and be in tune with everything they were doing. I had to carry their gear. I had to shoot like they did. I had to think like they did. And I also had to save their asses when they were in pain or they were dying. Yeah. So That's in a way being a medic, people don't want to piss you off too much because you're literally the one that would save their life. Or I could, like, make sure their wives didn't know that they caught chlamydia when they were in the Philippines. Right. Oh, so they would, <laughs> you would have, like, you would have... Uh, I'd have medical records. Ah, yeah. okay. So you'd have some dirt on them. Let them okay, interesting. Or like, they're not going to go home dirty. They're going to come home clean. They're going to come home like a good Catholic boy to their wives. That's right. Know, well so. done. Okay, interesting. Getting out of the military must have been a huge switch for you. I... I hope you don't mind me sharing this. At your 50th birthday, we had a little surprise for you. We were advised not to yell surprise, right. as this may bring up some triggering memories for you from the military. How was the transition back to the real world for you? I was still pretty numb coming back into the civilian world, just kind of walking out of it blindly and kind of numbed, not really dealing with the things that we dealt with, just kind of falling into just a... Uh, somewhat drug-induced, alcoholic, rock-and-roll lifestyle. So so that's a common thing, I, yeah. I hear. And also, that's kind of right where you started when you went in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that so must th- have been disappointing. Well, you know, it was funny because I had gotten out, and then here's a funny story about Palisade, where we currently are. The first time I ever came across this place, I was leaving the military, had a girlfriend, had this little, like, 1986 Ford hatchback. I had a dog three cats, an iguana, and we're driving across the country. An iguana? From Camp Pendleton, yeah. (laughs) And we're driving through the desert, and I remember, like, just seeing desert, desert, desert. Now, mind you, this is, like, July of 1995 when Palisade, the the Grand Valley, is, like, and it's all its splendor. It's rich, it's lush, it's rich, it's green. So we're just driving, and all of a sudden I saw, like, Mount Garfield, and I was like, what the, what is that? Like, am I on the moon right now? And I remember coming over like the Clifton Water Hill and then looking down into like the valley of, of, of Palisade. And I was like, what is this oasis? There's vineyards, there's peach trees, there's like all sorts of amazing stuff. And then as soon as you hit just past like the river again, then it's gone. It's gone. You're into Beck Canyon. And I was probably smoking some weed at the time because I was able to finally after the military. And so I was probably like, did I just imagine that or did I actually just <laughs> drive through that? And so, actually, we made it back to Tallahassee. My sister was living in Tallahassee. She was a graduate student uh, in Florida State. And I just was like, I don't know what I want to do with myself. I'm sure it's gonna, I'm going to figure it out. And once again, like, like I said, I was anticipating just being able to fall back into medicine. And that was a rude awakening for me later. Ended up renting this little shitty house in the Apalachicola National Forest. Lived right by a bog. And well, then, a shitty house in a national forest. Is it was better. pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, like literally this thing had more holes in it than like a block of cheese. But I mean, it was still cool to like live there. So and then fell in with some old friends that um, I like went to high school with. And we started a band and we played and we were just musicians. And I literally had probably like 31 jobs in a year everywhere from like a kennel sitter 
up to an exterminator and a wood destroying organism inspector and then kept finding myself going back to cooking and so i did cooking quite a bit um, so that's kind of what was cooking what introduced you into sort of the vibe that you roll with now well that's what kind of introduced me to colorado and yeah exactly what i'm doing now so there was this neighbor of mine like in the forest there who was like hey man like have you ever been to denver before and this is you know probably in 96 mid 96 he's like you ever been to denver and i was like no i've never been there he's like oh you would love it um like it's just like this beautiful like mountain town and you can see the mountains you know on the horizon and all this stuff and i was like that sounds glorious so i found myself cooking a lot and so i was like you know what maybe i should go to cooking school and so I t talked to the gal I was dating. I was like, how do you feel about like maybe going to, to, to Colorado? And she's like, what do you want to do there? And I was like, well, I'm going to see if I can go to cooking school. So I applied to the Art Institute of Colorado and they accepted me. And we... In Denver. In Denver. Okay. And so we... So I think back then it was the CIA, the Colorado Institute of Art. And so we packed it all up just having never been to Denver and showed up with now, was it two dogs? You still have the iguana? Uh, still had the iguana. Okay. Yeah, that poor iguana, man. This thing had such a living, and it finally just became like a dog toy, which oh. is really sad, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You you tried. Yeah, you but know. it was funny. Like, you know, we moved to, Den or to, to Denver, and I remember just having this big, like, six-person tent and the dog or maybe two and the cats, and we just pulled up. I had this 1966 Volkswagen bus that we towed out there, and dropped it off and set up a tent in Chatfield State Reservoir and s stayed there for about 14 days. Really? And went and found jobs and an apartment to live in. And that's how I established myself in, in Colorado. What was Denver like back then? Because no stadium downtown. A lot of that was different, right? Well, um, it was still like McNichols Arena. Uh, it was still, I believe, Bronco Stadium at the time. Well, were the Rockies there yet? The Rockies. Or maybe they I were 93. I, th I think like... What is it? Coors Field was like maybe a year or so okay. old. Yeah, I mean, or two. It was really, really young. Like Lodi was just pretty much the ghetto. Like Market Street and all that stuff was still just, you know, this is when Wine Cooper, Wine Cooper Brewery was still like in its infancy. Right. Yeah. You know, this is when Wellington Webb was still mayor. You know, and his his trans daughter chocolate thunder pussy was running around and throwing raves at club amsterdam and stuff so i do not know that story yeah, at all yeah. <laughs> i'll have to look yeah. that up. <laughs> little rabbit hole for later exactly okay interesting so cool all right so well let's let's start opening your wine now sure let's let's get to where you are today i, I got how you got to colorado you're in cooking so that blend i'm sure that sparked your interest in wine how did you get out here to palisade Yes. So cooking did lead me to wine. Basically, there was a program to go through the Level 1 SOM program. Ended up going through that. And then I had the, the um, option to take it one step further after graduating from my SOM program and becoming a certified chef of wine arts. Certified chef of wine arts, the whole job was to sit there and kind of match foods and wines. So worked in Denver off and on as a cook. Had some pretty nice gigs there. Never really worked front of the house, was always the back of the house. And I would get to a certain point, once again, where that high school mentality came up. I would be in cooking way too long, seeing I was going down the wrong path. And then I would go into medicine. So I practiced as a surgical tech for years while trying to pursue like my nursing degree. 
I'd go back to cooking, do that for a while, get the rock and roll lifestyle out of me, and then realize once again I'm back under a rock again. So you kept flipping between cooking and, and medicine, medicine, cooking exactly, and medicine. which I think led me to this point eventually because like I have biology and I have chemistry and I also have artistry, right? Passion. So met a girl once again. Women do that. Yep. yep. And I, she basically was uh, a classically trained ballerina and could not find a job in Denver any longer as a dancer. So she had a internship years ago in Austin when she was like dancing with Ballet Austin and asked, would you be interested in moving to Austin with me? Because I think I have a really good job, or job opportunity there. And I was like, absolutely. And then I moved to Austin and like 12 hours later, I absolutely regretted it. <laughs> I, hated, I hated Texas. I mean, it took me damn near 10 years of living there to finally like find an appreciation for it. So actually, you know, living in Denver for, or Austin for 10 years, I had some really good friends that were like really into wines and we'd have like these wine clubs and these wine dinners and that allowed me to kind of still pursue like that. But passion. you had never made wine at this point. I had never made wine. Never made wine. And so that girl and I ended up getting married and then divorced within that 10 year period of time. And that final year in Austin, when I was a single man, I was like, I'm going to go back to Colorado because on our final trip together, we had taken this long road trip throughout West Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, back up through Utah, through Colorado. And once again, coming through Palisade, I was like, what is this area? Like I've seen it before, like leaving Denver to go to Moab when I was living in Denver, but it just keeps, it keeps intriguing me. And the thing that I realized about Palisade is like, you don't discover it, it discovers you. Like it's, it's just one of those cool things. Like it calls you, like it, it calls certain people to it. I think the people that it calls will be here forever. And the other people, like they just kind of come in and get their fill. And they're like, I, I don't understand the, this place. Right. So, I feel that's true. I feel a lot of people have shared a similar story with me where they passed through here and they weren't just like, oh, that was cool. They're right. like, wow, this place. What is this place? What yeah. is this place? A question we're still kind of asking as we develop <laughs> our little town here, I think. Um, uh, I have two bottles here, so I'm going to open both of these. And okay. We can kind of go back and forth, but I'll explain them as we get there. Okay. So then, um, well, yeah. because when I, I first met you, you were working at RIP Plum Creek, yep. right? Yep. So how did you make it? How did you end up there? So St. Mary's, the hospital, I was still practicing as a surgical tech. You worked at St. Mary's. I, I came out here because of St. Mary's. I see. Like they recruited me. They courted me. Uh, courted you? Oh, dude. Like I reached out to them and was like, hey, you know, I'm wondering if you guys are hiring. And then their recruiter called me and they're like, we are looking for surgical techs, especially ones with like your experience. Can we line up an interview? So we lined up an interview and basically they're like, we're going to fly you out here for a week on us. We're going to put you up. We're going to give you a rental car. We're going to give you all these food and drink vouchers to all these like little restaurants and bars and breweries around here. And all we ask you for is one hour of your time, one of the days that you're here. Otherwise, we just want you to get a really good feeling for the valley to see if you like it here or not. And I was like, deal. So they flew me out, put me up in the Spring Hill Suites in downtown Junction. This is when the a bar still called The Local was happening. Um, and there was a big bike fest that was happening. So I went to The Local, got a free few beers from their vouchers, saw these really good, healthy-looking people that were on their bikes, got to go to Bin 707, had dinner, and had one of the Bin burgers. Like, it just, it was, everything worked. Got the rental car, drove through the National Monument, was blown away 
went into Fruita, tried Copper Club, tried Hot Tomato, just all the things, yes. right? Yes. Show up to St. Mary's. They walk me through. We all love each other. It's all copacetic. And they're like, okay, when can you start? And I was like, not for like eight months. I still have a lease in Austin. They're like, we'll wait. Wow. So they gave me a $10,000 sign-on bonus and relocation bonus. So the day I showed up here, I, f- I already had a house from a friend of a friend, fell right into place, had like about a week off before I started at St. Mary's, came out to Palisade for the first time with a friend that helped me move out here, did wine tastings, was absolutely blown away. I was like, What did you think of the wine when you first tried it here? You know, the first place I tried was, well, the first time I came out for that, that, little, that little trip, I went to Plum Creek the first time, actually, and I scoffed. I was just absolutely like... I was like, what is this horrible wine? That's hilarious. And I was like, I will never come to this place again. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, funny thing is like even rewind this years when I was in culinary school, years before that, we would do like these winemakers dinners, like when Carlson Vineyards and stuff would come out. And this was like in 1997, 98 or whatever. And like we would try like these wines from like Grand River and Plum Creek. And I was like, what the fuck is this swill? This is disgusting. And I ended up working for Carlson years later. And I ended up being the winemaker <laughs> for Plum Creek later. But the majority of our day that day, we ended up drinking at Maison de Bellevue. And there was this French gal there named Claire who used to work there years ago. And she walked us through the whole tasting from start to finish. And then when we were done, she's like, what do you think? And we're like, let's go in reverse now. So she walked us all the way back through. So I was like in love with Palisade. And of course, kind of sound, yeah, like yeah. you leave like the winery and you go to the brewery and then the distillery and then you find yourself delivery that night. And you're like, this could be dangerous. This could and be. And we all know the path now, don't we? The golden so. triangle. <laughs> yeah, we sure do. That's so funny that you went to Plum Creek and then said you were never coming back here. Yeah. So how did you end up working there? So St. Mary's hired me. I worked for St. Mary's and I got really into like canyoneering and just kind of outdoor stuff with these people because when I came here, my goal was to like not meet a woman. My goal was to like bury myself into the outdoors. So it was cool. Which is the exact strategy that will attract a lot of women. Exactly. Most likely. So I'm guessing you're about to tell me you met a woman. And well, I had two dogs. I had Ella and Miles okay. and I was out camping by myself all the time. Very confident, just very happy being by myself. And then I found myself in Palisade every weekend. Just, I was living in Grand Junction over by like Wrigley Field you know, or like Lincoln Park. And I would find myself in Palisade every weekend. Ended up going on this canyoneering trip because I ended up meeting a girl, of course, and I was really into like rock climbing and canyoneering. And she's like, well, you should go take this course. So I ended up taking this weekend long course to kind of just get the knots down and whatever. And then on our final day, we're on our final descent. We come across like this, about this, I don't know, this 17 to 20 degree face that levels out and then it drops about 160 feet. And there was a dead man anchor. And so the term dead man anchor basically means it's a, it's an anchor, but it's not fixed to anything. So it could just be a giant boulder. Like it could be four tons. It could be a ton, whatever. Like it, it holds enough weight where it won't slide, but it's not affixed to anything. So we end up coming on and the, the, you know, the instructors were like, Hey, we had some guys climb this last weekend. The boulders or the, the anchor is secure. Let's go ahead and attach to this. So, we all ended up attaching to it. A few people start start kind of like hand lining down, getting to the ledge, and a few people start repelling. And I start feeling like a bunch of like tension coming from the boulder itself, not from the line of people repelling, but from the boulder itself. So I'm like, this doesn't feel good. So I just kind of like uh, like detach from it. 
And I go and I sit down and I have this backpack on full of like herba mates and sandwiches and stuff. And there's an, a lady, she hits the, like the lip and she's about to start to her drop in for her rappel. And I hear like a bowling ball. Oh, no. But I realize it's this boulder that's probably three tons comes loose. The dead man anchor comes loose oh, and I'm leaning against it. So all of a sudden it just starts pushing me downhill and I'm like pushing against it. And I realize I'm about to hit this flat part and I'm about to be pushed down this 160 foot drop. So I shimmy, shimmy, shimmy and go, no, 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 fuck, 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 no. And I like push myself against it as hard as I can. And I don't know, somehow this thing kind of rolls off of my right shoulder and rolls over my right hand and begins to roll and break into pieces and just misses that woman. She almost had complete slack line where she fell, but she actually was able to catch herself. And the guys that actually went slack line were only about six feet off the ground when that line went slack. But both of those boulders that like broke up and fell next to them missed them by inches. So everybody's flipping the fuck out. Everybody's screaming. Everybody's accounting for each other, but I'm oh sitting God, there man. and I'm like, uh, uh, so I pull, I look at my glove and I have this white glove, like this repelling glove on. I'm like, this is, this is not good. So I pull my glove off and my pinky finger and my ring finger are literally in the shapes of S's, uh, uh stark white. I have bones sticking out of my hands. So the first thing I do, I'm like, oh shit. So like I set my fingers, I pull them straight. You knew what to do. And then I yeah. just kind of set my bones back in my hand and everybody's like, everybody okay? Everybody okay? And I was like, guys, guys. And they're like, Oh shit. So one of the instructors was an ex Marine and he and I had this camaraderie. And so long story short, I had to like one arm it out of this Canyon to go to surgery that night. And I was about two credit hours away from graduating nursing school because I'd put so much work into it through Austin and then starting here at CMU. And they're like, well, you can't finish your clinical hours, so you have to go back to the starting point. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, you can't finish your clinical hours. Like, you have to go back to square one. That's like, oh like a two-year wait. So I was like, well, what am I going to do with myself? So I had this come-to-Jesus moment, and I was like, well, I live in the land of, like, vines and orchards and wines. So what do I want to do? And I was like, you know what? I want to go learn how to be a winemaker. How many lives have you lived? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's just like, that's amazing. And it seems like every time you got so far on something, you were pushed back or literally by a boulder. Right. That's insane. Yeah. Okay, so you decided to go to school. You went to UC Davis? So I actually started at the program here. I realized that CMU has Western Colorado Community College and there's a winemaker out there, Jenny Baldwin Eaton, who started a program, was pretty young, and the viticulturalist was Galen Wallace. So I figured that I might as well start with viticulture first to kind of see, I want to start with the raw organic product before I go into like the actual theory of making wine. So I went through two semesters of viticulture through the program. And then to no fault of their own, I just did some research and realized that once again, I'm kind of like a name guy. So if I'm going to do something, I want to do it with like some sort of pedigree behind it. So I realized that UC Davis had an online program. I was already practicing as a seller hand and having like my basic winemaking skills kind of honed at Carlson Vineyards because Garrett Portra there gave me a chance. Like I came in one day and said, hey, dude, I'm willing to do whatever the fuck it takes to like learn how to make wine. He's like, ah, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, do you have any experience? And I was like, nope. And finally, he's like, I'll just give you the chance, which was like 
this just the you need launch. those people in your life exactly yeah. open the door and dude talk about like incredible seller experience being able to like start out a place like carlson because they produce so much wine there are they one of the largest producers here i think so really yeah I didn't yeah know that. they do a lot of wine and Garrett's young, he's hungry, he's trying to create, and it was really cool to kind of start underneath him to kind of see how, where, where I wanted to go. When I first came out to Palisade years ago, like I had met Corey Norsworthy, who was the winemaker for Maison de Bellevue, and I, I kept whoring myself out to him, like, hey man, like I want to be a winemaker. <laughs> and he's like, well, when can you work? And I was like, on the weekends. He's like, I don't really work during the weekends. And I was like, wow, like what a cool job. <laughs> so finally, you know, years after us knowing each other at Carlson, he kind of reached out to me and he was like, I was wondering, like, I'm wondering if you're looking for some sort of kind of short term work at Plum Creek as I'm consulting there. I don't really want to be there all the time. Are you interested in this position? And I was like, absolutely. So that position quickly turned into a full time position. And he consulted for a bit, eventually stepped away which really was a cool experience because it allowed me to kind of gain my chops and run a winery. So it was very much of a learning experience. And um, I still like think of Plum Creek all the time. But now they're closed. RIP. RIP. Yeah. Okay. So setting the stage now, you had this experience in Palisade. First of all, if you had a crazy life, you got to Palisade, start making wine, working at all these wineries. Right. You gonna put that on? You gonna turn this light on? Yeah. Yeah, do it. That's how you have to do it every time. Yeah. Jesus, <laughs> Good man. Good thing we're tall. I guess so. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you're you're at Plum Creek. That closes. That was probably a blessing and a curse in some ways, as all jobs end. But now, one of the reasons I was so as excited to to talk to you is that you have your own label. Yes. Periphery Sellers. Yes. So how did you go from being, I mean, how does that even happen, right? Like you think about, oh, I'm going to open my own brewery and people can kind of wrap their heads around that because you walk into the brewery. People see in the beginning of craft beer movement, garage door breweries, everyone's probably been to them where it's just a little spot where someone's doing a micro brew or small batch. I'm not sure people think about wine in the same way. Whenever we think of wine or we think of wineries, right? right? A place that you go that has fields and a big warehouse and it's this whole operation. Urban wineries have come up in, in previous decades, but usually a lot of times they're offshoots of established wineries that are out in the country. So can you walk us through what does it mean to start your own label as just an individual person? How does that work? Well, Periphery was launched 100% for the reason to allow me not to be thumbed down by Plum Creek. Like Sue Phillips, God bless her, has an incredible palate. She has a long standing history in this valley, but she is very well known to be a classical, just very well structured kind of wine drinker. And her vision is the same. Like she loves the old school varieties, the Cab Francs, the Cab Sauvs, Petit Verdots, the Merlots, the Chardonnays. And so when you're working as a winemaker for someone, you have to follow their recipes. How much creativity do you get to express yourself as the winemaker? Is every winery different? It wasn't per se recipes. I think it was just more of like the vision that she was after or just what she was like, what she knew. Cause she doesn't, she didn't like sudden changes. She didn't like the unknown. And so I think Corey being in that position, Jenny being in that position, Eric, the starting winemaker there was very comfortable for her because they worked with things that she knew and they made those things in styles that she was comfortable with. 
with my wine background and just I'm an adventurous wine drinker. I like to, once again, think outside the box when it not only comes to making wines, but to drinking wines. I want to try things that are different from different regions. That was a big change for her for me to come in there. And there was a lot of like push and pull and a lot of like anxiety on both ends because like how am I going to do this the right way without pissing her off but how am I also going to do this like by I still feel like I have a say in doing things right but how does that conflict start because you're as the winemaker she is or you're sourcing all the grapes you're taking care of right you're looking in the valley of what's good and then every year you're saying okay this is what we have this is what we should make or is there a playbook because a lot of wineries like now yellowtail or whatever right they're just kind of dishing out the same thing year after year. Right. It's not like you would be, oh, that 2018 Yellowtail. And then some wineries, it's very vintage-oriented, very right. different styles all the time, experimental, like you're saying. So how does that arise, the situation you're talking about? Well, sticking to tradition, tradition, like you can use the same yeast, the same wine, like, wine making like techniques and styles from year to year to like kind of try to convey the same message you've been getting along for eons now when i go to the word of vintage i don't i like to think of vintage as the story of that year not the not the the number of the year so people's like oh 2022 is like this vintage i'm like no 2022 is like this story and that's how it like makes everything different and so i think the way that she finally gave me the reins where she knew she could trust me it took a bit of me actually making her not trust me and me upsetting her and that started with i believe it was the 2020 festival and so the festival blend is a white blend usually some leftover stuff and hearing the story of how this originated the festival blend it was never meant to be sweet but somehow along the way it became like this just sweet kind of garbage blend that sweet white wine drinkers like to have and so I remember it was, I believe it was a Aramella Chardonnay Riesling blend that year. And Corey and I were doing some sugar trials on it. And we got to a point where we're like, okay, this is where it's supposed to be. So I come in on Saturday and I'm doing the back sweetening now. And I remember getting to a point and I'm like, I can't go any sweeter than this. I just can't. Like I might take a beating for this, but just palate wise, I cannot go any sweeter than this. I finished it. I called it wrote the numbers in the book. Corey ended up coming on like on Monday and he tasted it and he's like, this, this is not what we agreed upon. And I was like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but aren't you the winemaker? Isn't that your well, call? This, he was still consulting. So okay. he kind of still had like ultimate say, but yeah, I mean, I was in that position at that point. Um, and so Sue found out about it and she was not happy. And a few months went by and I finally graduated from UC Davis and, oh, so uh, you were still a pretty green winemaker still, at this point. Well, I mean, I was like, I already had the cellar experience. I think I already had like a harvest or two like under my, my belt with Plum Creek. But I was still working on that Plum Creek kind of thing, or the, the uh, UC Davis thing. And so she's like, um, come over to Denver. Let's have lunch. She summons you to Denver? Yes. It's a long lunch meeting. So I show up and I just graduated from UC Davis. So she gives me this really nice bottle of wine. She thinks, I, I, she's like, I think you'll like this. And then blah, blah, blah. And the conversation starts. And she's like, you made a unilateral decision. And I don't know if I can trust you. And I don't know if I can trust you with my wine. And just laid it on me. And then, however, 
this is an amazing wine. It's a sound wine. And it just won a double gold medal in the Governor's Cup. It did? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Julia loves it. Yeah. I see it all the time still around, even yeah. though they're not well, in business it's anymore. Well, is it the 20 or the 21? Because the 21 was all hybrids. And it's a little different than the 20. But they're they're pretty similar. I think the 21 was a bit more just it was a bit more adventurous because it had like a carbonic maceration, the crescent in it, and it had a Tosca added to it. So for me, I prefer the 21 to the 20. So after that, she gives you the range. So after that, she started seeing that we started getting like a lot of recognition and publicity for the work that we were doing there. Was that the first medals they had won or Uh, they've been recognized previously? They've been recognized. I mean, Plum Creek has so many medals, but we were like one of only two wineries in the governor's cup that year that were white wines it was us and i somebody else for like some gravarch tomato everybody else was reds and sue was pretty damn confident that we were going to take the cup that year and i definitely saw like the wind get sucked out of her sails when carboy took it that year but once again it was a sound wine but she started seeing every all the recognition that we got just from winning that double gold medal. We had this media tour that came through, and then we ended up getting written up by so many different people for just the work that we were doing on cold-hardy cultivars or hybrids. And she realized that she actually had somebody who knew what the hell they were doing in her wheelhouse. And so she started taking advantage of it, and she realized it's like, okay, I'm going to let you do this. You make it the way that you want because I realize what you're doing it's going to be sound winemaking skills, and there, it's going to be exquisite wine. That must have felt great. It was super cool. That's what you're looking for, right? That's Just what you're an looking opportunity. for. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, not to sound rude or anything, but you basically want an owner that's silent, that writes checks, that cash. But but that makes sense because for beer, and th- it is experimental, and so just with that said, there are. S- traditional recipes you're following and it's very you know order the ingredients offline it comes to you winemaking is so much more expressive because you're working with a real fruit that's different every year and the chore of the winemaker as i understand it is to express that so i don't understand how you could own a winery and then hire a winemaker but then try and control them because isn't it their tasting and knowledge and just intuition of what the grapes are tasting like and anything that happens in the winery to just move forward with it. Isn't... That's the idea. That's okay. the idea. And then also, you know, the, the unique thing about winemaking is you only have one go round a year. Exactly. It's not like brewing where I can do numerous batches throughout the year and like tweak this and remove that. And Is that a lot of pressure? Absolutely. I would yeah. think so. Because picking days and harvest days, like you're literally like losing sleep for days, if not weeks up into the point where you're picking because you're like, even when you're getting super close onto like a reading, like a chemistry on a grape, you're like, should I have picked yesterday or should I wait two more days? And what happens if weather comes in? Like there's so many variables that are running through your brain at any given moment towards like, this is going to be a really good wine or I'm going to just mess it up by missing it by one hour or one day. And so there's a lot of pressure, you know? Right. Cause it's not even about just the fermentation aspect, which has a whole slew of things but yeah to your point picking when to pick that grape exactly when does it taste good enough and then having the plan of well if i pick it today here's what i'll do if i pick it tomorrow here's what i'll do right totally different game plans yep. that's interesting yeah once a year once a year and so so there was a few things that i was trying to do at plum creek that she was she pushed against very heavily she's like we were not going to do this we are not going to make an orange wine we are not going to do this we are not going to do that and i was like well you know what okay that's fine i'm going to start my own label 
And this was actually one of those things that I never told her about because why would I need to? There was no contract that was signed. I wasn't using her facility. I wasn't using her product. I was doing everything by myself. And it was for my own expression. Um, yeah, it'd be like a writer. You're working for a magazine, but you right. decide to write a book on the side. Exactly. It's like, I don't need to tell my editor what I'm doing. Exactly. Yeah. So it's basically my way of thumbing my nose, not only at her, not only at Plum Creek, but just at the style of that, of that winemaking, which I think is a beautiful like style of winemaking because I feel like this last vintage, 22 before we were purchased, I think I made some of the best wine that I had ever made at Plum Creek that it's, it's for me, it's really unfortunate because I don't know where it's going to go and if I'll ever be able to taste it in its true form and the way it was supposed to be made right? before it gets blended out or bastardized by somebody else that doesn't really understand what I was trying to do. And what's a winemaker's concern? Are they, or not a winemaker, sorry. Uh, Sue's concern is, is essentially that she thinks she knows what sells and to use the grapes in another way would be risky? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, once again, she's been in the game for 34 years. She sees what happens and what doesn't happen. To her credit, she's probably done everything under the sun, but maybe with not the right winemakers. So there might just be a completely different take on it if it was made in this way as opposed to that way. Not saying right versus wrong, but maybe just stylistically. Yeah, well, it's understandable the dynamic between you two because she's a veteran. She's done it a certain way. Uh, she sold the winer, obviously, so she was kind of on her way out. Exactly. You're a new guy hungry to put your stamp on something. Right. So it makes sense. Yep. Maybe it was meant to be that you – Yeah. It worked out well. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it could have been. I, I see those as opportunities, right? You Had you been in with someone who just gave you free reign, you may have never started your own label. You may have put all your hard work into their label. Exactly. And now you wouldn't be sitting here with two bottles of your own wine in front of you. <laughs> yes, please refill. Well, so what, so what are actually, we drinking here? Yeah, tell me about it. So this is actually made uh, 2022 at Plum Creek. This is Itasca. So Itasca to me – um, is, I'm just going to say it right out, is the future of the white grapes for Colorado, if not one of them. Basically, this was developed at University of Minnesota. We're in a, about the fourth or fifth year of it now. There's not much going around. The this is grown here in the Grand Valley? Yeah, and the way that we got this for Plum Creek was 21. 20 was the horrible freeze. 21 rolled around. Plum Creek was not making a lot of wine because in 20, all we did was white wines because of the the, the, the freeze and also the the smoke taint that was happening that year in the Valley. We chose not to make any red wines in 2020 because we didn't want to risk the idea of all of our red wines going through smoke taint. So we decided just to make white wines. White wines are safe. You're not doing any skin contact. It's a quick turnaround. That year we won a Smoke taint medal. meaning from the fire? We had horrible fires in 2020. So not only was it COVID, but we also had horrible fires that engulfed the Valley. And then we ended up having a horrible freeze that year that we lost, I don't know, 70% of all our vinifera vines. So just a really, really weird year to be here and to kind of go through that. And I think a lot of us are much more tightly knit and bound together now, having survived through that. But at the same time, like a lot of us went in different directions because we had to survive. So a lot of other wineries ended up having to buy grapes from out of state the following year or buy wine from out of state the following year. So a lot of like these 100% Colorado wineries had to like figure out a way to make money. What so year was this? 21. 21. Yeah. Oh, wow. So recently. So 21 for Plum Creek was very weird. We didn't make any red wine the, the previous year. We only made white wine, and we sold through a lot of it because, once again, we won a double gold medal for the, the festival. 
and then there wasn't a lot of grapes to go around because everything had been killed off or it was regrowing. So the big houses were getting the majority of the grapes. And then I approached Bruce Talbot and I was like, Hey man, like what's available. And he's like, very little, if anything. And I was like, okay. So he actually kind of came back and he's like, you know what? I have like this acre of this grape Atasca. Nobody knows what it is. Nobody wants to work with it. If you're willing to take this and work with it and give us, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 gallons for our tap room over at Talbot's, I'd be willing to give you whatever I have left over. And I was like, really? Okay. I was like, what do you have left over? It was a hundred percent hybrids and it was only like 12 tons. That's the cold hardy hybrids. Yes. Okay. And we're used to doing like 60, 70, 80 tons at a time, which is not big by any means, but we went down to like 11 and a half to 12 tons, all hybrids. Sue had never worked with hybrids except like, one or two years with like Aramella and stuff like that. And she was kind of leery of them, of them still. So I approached her and I was like, here is our, our situation. We don't harvest this year. We buy grapes from out of state or we work with hundred percent hybrids. And she's like, are they all Colorado grown? And I was like, yes. She's like, do it. And so we only harvested like 11 and a half, 12 tons of a mixed bag of hybrids that year. So Villard Blanc, Itasca, Aramella, Tremonette, Petite Pearl, Nore, Chamberson, St. Vincent, things we had never worked with before. And we started some really cool programs with that. And once again, that kind of woke up the dragon when people realized that we were working with nothing but hybrids. We started getting all sorts of people reaching out. All right. Well, explain that to people, what you mean by hybrids. And I'm understanding it as cold, hardy varietals. So talk about kind of the traditional grapes that we have from Europe sure. and why they don't really work here and, and why we're moving towards this these varietals. So, you know, genus species, Vitis vinifera, are the European varietals. Merlot, Cabernet. Merlot, ca Cabernet. Everything Franc, we've come Capsa, to know from the wine. All yeah. of, you know, Grandma Jean's, Coldon's, your mom and dad's, you know, Zinfandel's, all the big names. Those are Vitis vinifera. Cold hardy cultivars are hybrids. So it's a hybrid or it's a blend of a Vitis vinifera and then like an American thing. So it's just like either Vitis labrusca, Vitis riparia, Vitis rupestris, something like that, which is generally developed in the United States. And there's also French American hybrids to where like a French viticulturalist would take European varietal and graft it on to a American rootstock, which going way back also, which helped save the whole world's industry of preventing the phylloxera root louse because our gift once again to the world was our gift americans gift our american gift is that we basically ended up getting vines back to europe that transmitted this root louse and decimated the world's vines oh so you're being facetious it's not a true <laughs> gift we gave I say. <laughs> okay so we infected the world so we infected the world of wine of wine okay but what we also when did was is, that Oh, God. I think what was what was Phylloxera, I think, discovered. I don't remember the year. I mean. All right. We'll, we'll look it up. I have to look but, it up, yeah. But so we, we poisoned the, the world. We wine. poisoned the world. And then so this idea of grafting. But of then we also saved the world because we realized that the American rootstocks is what's resistant to this louse. So what they end up doing is they end up grafting European varietals to American rootstocks. So you have vinifera growing on American rootstocks, which therefore kind of resists this louse. I see. So it's cool. So 
now what they're doing is they're taking certain traits of American vines and certain traits of like European vines and they're blending them together. And those would be known as like French American hybrids or cold hardy cultivars. And some things were developed just specifically like at Cornell or University of Minnesota. And so like, for example, like things like Aramella with the double L, you know, that's the kind of the trademark of Cornell because of the double L. So there's like little things like that. And so these things specifically are grown like in the Northeast or the Midwest. And what they're designed for is not only to like resist pest kind of infiltration, but they're also known to resist cold temperatures. Some of these things can like live into temperatures like to 40 below zero. And a lot of them are like really drought resistant and they're like very robust in their growing conditions. And they grow an incredible amount of, of grapes. But the thing is, is like, they're not plug and play like a lot of vinifera grapes are. The chemistry is very wonky on them. They're harder to make wine with? Well, they're not hard to make wine with. I think they're just more difficult to work with because people expected these things to kind of exhibit these characteristics and these nuances that the old school varieties that, that were doing this. Like vinifera to me and to a lot of winemakers is like they're plug and play. Like you, you, you pick them at the right time, you give them the right yeast, or even if you choose to do so, and just kind of let them do their thing and they, they make a really nice wine. Whereas these hybrids, like you pick them at a certain rate and then all of a sudden like the chemistry is upside down and they're full of acid and they have different flavors, which a lot of people call as like foxy or just like funky. I mean like there's foxy. Yeah. I foxy. Like yeah. Like, so what we're discovering more and more now is, is that you have to be able to like work with these, these varieties to, and be able to understand them and know that you're not going to turn a petite pearl into a petite Verdot. And you're not going to turn a Baco Noir into a Pinot Noir. You have to understand the chemistry and when to pick these things. And they have different they have different characteristics. They have different energies and attitudes. Well, this is delicious. How do you describe this Itasca? So this Itasca is really cool because really nice acidity, really kind of like nice uh, floral citrusy notes on it. But it, once again, it depends on when you pick it and how like, you treat it as far as aging. So with this year, what I did is I had to actually end up taking half of it and doing like a tank aged kind of thing. So it's very neutral stainless steel, ripping acidity. And it came out tasting a lot like a Sauvignon Blanc. And then I took the other half and put it to like a neutral oak barrels. And after just a few months, it kind of came out with a bit more like structure and weight and it ended up tasting more like a, a Viognier. So to me, it's a very versatile grape that's going to grow exceptionally well here in Colorado, just given the fact that we have such crazy temperature swings. Uh, we have such crazy diurnal temperatures, which is basically the difference between night and day. Are people planning this a lot now? I think more and more people are actually, they have tasted a bit of it. And I think we're actually starting to up-ramp the production of it. I think there's some people down down in Paonia and the West Elks AVA that have actually taken a chance and put a few vines in. I believe that here in Palisade, we're actually starting to kind of put a bit more acreage in of this grape as well. Because people, usually they identify wine regions as being good for one thing, right. right? I'm not an expert on it, but you think of certain regions around the world, they have certain types of grapes that grow well. People may ask, what does Palisade offer? What is the answer to that question? Well, that's a really hard question because like given our elevation, given our terrain, you know, we're essentially high desert and we should not be growing anything here if it weren't for our irrigation canals, right? 
Well, the river runs right through here. But that's only because of what, what we did how many years ago to allow irrigation to run into the valley itself, right, from the ditches. Vinifera probably should not be growing here. We've lost a lot of vinifera. I think closer to the mouth of the Tibet Canyon, things grow there pretty well. But we've also, like, eaten our shit on that because we realized after a few freezes that we lost some pretty well-established grapes that have grown there exceptionally well for years. What I think Palisade offers is we're, we're, we have, first and foremost, we have to make sure that we realize and we have to let people know that we are nothing more and thank God than Colorado wine because we're something special. We're something unique. We have a different elevation. We have a different terrain. We have different exposure. We have different days and nights as opposed to, say, California, Washington State, or Oregon. So when people come here expecting those wines, they're not going to get them. And more and more winemakers now are not trying to make wines in those styles. They're trying to make wines in the style of Colorado wines. So the things that grow well here definitely are cold hardy cultivars. That's test. what I was getting at. It would be yeah. great if we could just, maybe we should just say no to the viniferas in general and just move to the cold hardy and say, this is our specialty. I know. I agree with that. But at the same time, like there are some viniferas that grow here pretty well. Okay. And I think, as we go on, those things are going to become harder and harder to find. And we're definitely be calling for a higher price on those things, especially like as grape growers continue to lose these crops, they get three out of seven years of return, right? Like it's not a really good return. So of course the weight of tonnage is going to go up every year. So therefore the price of the bottle is going to go up. But at the same time, we have winemakers that are here now. They're like you, like new and young, and they're vibrant, they're energetic, and they have the the knowledge and the ability to kind of like take these things and make them work for what they are. And so, I mean, in a perfect world, I would love to see this be 100% hybrids, right? Like produce some of the best hybrids in the world. But I still think that we are a bit behind on the public kind of understanding of that and acceptance. So if we switched over totally, people would come here, have no idea what the hell we're talking about and not want to come here. The vinifers in a way are an introduction. People know it. They say, okay, I want to try that. And then you lead them into the cold hardies. Yeah. I mean, like even like New York state, I mean, up in the Finger Lakes region, you have a lot of cold hardies up there, but you still have some Rieslings up there and some Cab Francs and stuff like that, that are the bigger names and right, it still yeah. has a big draw. Okay. Um, so how did you, well, let's, let's back up because I want to hear how you selected your wines, but you haven't really told us how you started your own label. What does that mean? You have your own warehouse, you have your own fields. How are you, how did, how did this process go for you? So I actually do not have my own grapes. I actually end up purchasing them from just different growers throughout the Valley Primarily the Talbots. I ended up taking a few off of the Carboy guys and ended up getting some from Colorado Vintner Specialist, which is Kaibab Savage and Patrick over at Nito Savage. Yeah. Just because I established a relationship with these guys throughout the years and was kind of telling them, like, this is what I'm kind of trying to establish. So what I actually what I ended up doing um, while studying at Plum Creek is I was just like, I'm going to take a chance. So on February 2nd, 2022, 2022 at 2.22 in the afternoon, I got my license i got my all my certifications are you a numerology guy (laughs) (laughs) say it ain't so kind of you know (laughs) (laughs) did you pick that exact time or that's exactly i picked everything for 222 222 love it man yeah yeah everything was officially launched at that point and everything that i made was kind of just due to travels 
things that I wanted to kind of mimic or kind of try to recreate. I knew that I wanted to make a Vino Verde style. Portugal. Uh, right, exactly. Right. You had some travels there? Had some travels there. Okay. I knew that I wanted to make kind of like a Beaujolais Nouveau style of wine, which would be this Melanger here. And then I also knew that I wanted to do kind of like a barrel-aged rosé, which is like more Jura, like, uh, you know, southeastern France. Uh, Were, what, did your experiences just drinking these in those regions, that travel bug, inspire you? Or was there something more specific that pointed you in these directions? Definitely travel bug, but also just kind of, I think, emotional movements when I did taste these things. Maybe given the experience, maybe just given the, the label on the bottle or something, I knew that these things were each unique and special to me. And I was like, wow, how do I ever get back to like that, that image, that vision, that energy? And so I tried to create these wines to, to give the people the kind of the same exact things that I was feeling. And it's cool if they come to me and say, dude, like I just had this experience with this wine. I remember like the first time I ever had like a really good Vino Verde, I was in Lisbon and ended up going to um, this place that I saw on Bourdain. It was like the seafood place, Cervaharia Ramiro. And it was like this uh, big seafood restaurant. So my partner and I at the time ended up going there and you sit outside and this place is just jam packed with people. And you, you wait outside for like an hour and a half and they, you can buy like these little tokens and they have a beer machine out front and you put the tokens in and like you're, you're pouring beers off this little tap machine. You're drinking fresh beer. And now that's a decent world right there. Yeah, dude. Come it's on. super cool. I mean. <laughs> and you're like watching these people inside, like have the best time ever. And you've seen these giant platters of seafood come out. And so we finally got in and I was so excited and I saw it like once again, it was like off of Anthony Bourdain and I saw this, the stuff that he was eating, like these tiger prawns and like barnacles and Dungeness crab and all this stuff. But the thing that really excited me the most was like the three Euro bottles of Vino Verde, but they called it green wine. And I didn't understand why they called it green wine because you, you expect it to have like this greenish tinge, but it doesn't. It's just green because it's picked really underripe, so the grapes are still like super tart, super green, really racy, really really acidic, and there's always a bit of like a little bit of effervescence inside of it, which later I found out that in the old days they were picking these grapes so underripe or whatever they weren't even finishing the fermentation that they actually had some natural carbonation inside of them, almost like a pet nat, but um, nowadays they kind of force carbonate it. Okay, but. As time as goes on, like you're realizing now more and more like these, these giant Portuguese like green winemakers or Vino Verde style winemakers are actually going more dry and they're actually allowing the wine not to create any effervescence. And some are even starting to like oak age them now, which for me like would be, I think would just take away from like the whole like nuance of a, of a young wine like that. So the first one is the Blanqui Blanco and my current offerings right now, which I call the Valley Verde, which having met you and Julia, we were talking about that. And then she actually coined that term because I was like, well, it's Vino Verde. And she's like, well, we're in the Valley. Why don't we call it a Valley Verde? So she'll be very happy to hear you say that. Oh yeah. Props <laughs> to Julia. <laughs> That's a really cool story. I love that. And you have similar backstories for the other two wines, I'm guessing. So the push-pull rosé, um, you know, I kind of made a barrel-aged rosé at Plum Creek with St. Vincent, Villard Blanc, and... Um, was it Chamberson, which we actually ended up making like a pet net out of and then took the remaining volume from the, the pet net run that we did and ended up putting it into neutral oak air, or barrels. And that was really super cool. Like, you know, and then also the St. Vincent comes from the Bellina block, which is you interviewed Drew 
over yeah. at Harding Home Ground. Yeah, we had Drew on the pod. Yeah. yeah. So so Drew and his wife Nicole had this really cool small block of St. Vincent right there on the irrigation canal. It's the old um, Red Fox Vineyards, and they pretty much ripped everything out and began like this really cool kind of like sustainable regenerative like farming kind of program. But they ended up leaving those grapes in there. And when he first took those grapes over, like we took the volume of that vineyard that year just because we wanted to take some St. Vincent. And I think we got like 600 pounds, like not much. And the following year, when I started Periphery, I was like, Drew, I'm going to take all of your grapes off of you. And he's like, okay, well, I'm just trying something a little different. So he did like absolutely nothing to those grapes, I think. Like he just let, let nature feed it. And I think he maybe watered them sporadically here and there. And so pick time came, you know, I'd show up there just intermittently and try these things. And I was like, okay, pick time is here. I remember showing up and told my pickers, I was like, go pick the vineyard. And they came back like two hours later and I was like, are you guys done? They're like, yeah. And I was like, okay, like, cool. And he's like, yeah, but there's like a lot of grapes left out there. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, like we only got like three rows done. And I don't know, there's like 11 rows or something out there. They ended up picking, I mean... I was expecting 600 pounds. I think they picked over a ton and a half. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck am I going to do with a ton and a half of grapes with being as small as I want to go? So I actually ended up selling the rest like a, a ton off. I only took a half a ton. But what do you, so what do you do with these grapes once you get them because you don't have your own facility? So explain no, to people so, what you're doing. Okay. So actually what I ended up doing is I ended up creating an alternating proprietorship with the Talbots. So the Talbots here are a large sixth generational, seventh generational family. We all family. know the Talbots, okay. of course. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So if you want to talk about a salt of the earth type of people, hundred percent, that would literally go out of their way for anyone, even if you absolutely fucked them over, they would still somehow turn the other cheek and welcome you into their house, and say, "How can we help you?" So Palisades lucky to have they, people like we that. are so lucky to have them here. So it was really cool. They actually ended up reaching out to me at some point. They had a, a few a few things of juice and like I don't know some cider or some wines or something that they were having some issues with. And I'd fix some stuff at Plum Creek and Galen Wallace, the viticulturalist for Plum Creek and also over there at Talbots ended up telling them like, Hey, I'm confident that Joe could probably help you through this problem. So they ended up reaching out to me and asking if I would like walk them through some stuff and some analysis. Oh, this is already open. This is the melange. Look how that happens. So, um, so they ended up really appreciative and they realized that I was looking for a place to start a small label. I ran it by them asking if I would be, if they'd be willing to kind of host me to make a small batch of wine up there. And we eventually ended up agreeing on to an alternating proprietorship, which means that I have a licensed winery on their facility. So you're so renting space from them. I'm renting space from them. Yeah. Amazing. And are you, you have your own equipment up there or? I have my own everything. I am actually a licensed winery. So I have my own barrels, tanks, pumps, hoses, clamps, everything. It's super cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so when you get this from Drew, you got all these grapes, you're hauling them up to the Talbots, pressing them, going through all the thing. Take me through that process. You said something very interesting. I, I think it's interesting that every vintage is a story. And I'm curious what you mean by that, because clearly you have a name, you have a label, but I think you mean deeper than that, the actual winemaking experience, right? 
Yeah, you know, there's so many things of gain and loss and uh, ups and downs. There's weather situations. There's breakups. There's death. There's happiness. There's birth. I, f I, I find it really just disheartening that people discount the term vintage so much by just putting a number on it because there's so much more of a story and depth to the word vintage. To me, there's like there's just a whole like plethora of energy that's happening. If I could actually put like three words as descriptors for that year, that would be my vintage. So 2022 would be like breakup, death, start of a label. So that, you can almost taste your own life in the swine. Absolutely. You knew what you were going through when you made it. Yeah. You knew what you were experiencing. How do you convey that to a random person drinking it? Or does that matter to you? I think it really does matter. I think you just have to make sure like you're choosing your audience wisely when you're trying to convey that to them because some people just want to like open up a bottle of wine and drink it. And you start giving them this like spiritual hoodoo guru shit. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just shut the fuck up. Let me drink this. Right. But then I think the ones that I really have an appreciation for something that they're tasting, they can taste life in this. This was created and made with life, with energy. It's not just trying, it's not mass produced. I'm not just trying to put something through the process to get it to you as fast as I can. I'm trying to like let it express what it needs to. And only at that point when I feel like it has that true expression is when I'll put it into a bottle. I'll back you up on this because when I first met you at Ordinary Fellow, I thought you were cool. And then I reached out to you and I had some friends in town to do a tasting at Plum Creek. And that's where I really got the Joe Flynn bug because I had tasted all throughout Palisade. And the tasting that you did for me and my friends was one of the most memorable I've ever had in the Valley. I think you really excel at presenting your wine. Whereas, honestly, I think a lot of the Valley could learn from you in that. So much of wine tasting, sure, you have some people that come through that want to sit and chat and with themselves and just drink it. But for me, personally, wine tasting is an experience. Right. I want to know from you what you put into this glass in front of me. And I think you really excel in that. And I'm excited for you to move forward in this process where you're giving tastings to people because... Personally, I think that's the next step for Palisade to taste, take the tasting experience to another level. Of course. I'll editorialize here a little. I've been to some places where it's really not that fun to go. Right. Uh, I have a few pet peeves. For example, I really hate when I do a tasting and I'm asked to come up to the bar every time to get my glass refilled. I don't know how I can get a half-inch pour, walk over to my table, drink it with my people, and then walk back up to the bar three minutes later to get a new one, stand in line for four minutes, then come back and do this process over and over again. That That is not wine tasting to me. Right. That is not the experience I'm looking for. I've been to other places where they just, oh, this is our cab, and pour right. it, and off they go. And look, everywhere is busy. They got different things going on, so it is what it is. Everyone chooses their thing, but I'm just saying from a consumer standpoint, these are the things I remember I remember your tasting very clearly because you made me think about each wine. And I'm wondering what you think about the Valley and that and how we can improve and what you think about that tasting experience for guests. That tasting experience, I loved doing those just for like the select people because once again, I had your attention. Like I knew I had 
the ability to guide you from one place to the next. And I was able to convey to you and express exactly what it was that went into these wines. And so it wasn't just this like willy nilly thing that I just brought anybody back there. It was like a very like well sought after and a, like just, you know, if you knew, you knew and like you knew the secret password and you got the tasting, right? And those were really special, unique tastings. And I think most people would agree with you on that. Unfortunately, what I'm seeing right now is that there's still quite a bit of people that are coming in that have no right rhyme or reason to be in the industry where we have money, we can buy a space and we can try to create an experience for people. But once again, we're missing the point. They're faking it. They're faking it. I think that there's enough people now, though, that have done enough research on Colorado wines and realize what Palisade has to offer to where they're going to look past these things and they're going to continue to like move their way deeper into Palisade and actually find the true gems. And there's enough like influence like on social media now with people that have like, discovered us and they're giving us the credit. And there's enough influence now through national publications that have like recognized what we have to offer here where I think we have finally like been recognized to the point that people are literally coming from near and far to kind of get a taste of what we have to offer because it's, it's truly unique. What do you envision for yourself? So right now you're making the wine in the warehouse. You're just selling bottles or will be selling bottles via your website, things like that. Correct. Do you anticipate creating a tasting experience for people? Yeah. So currently I have not officially launched yet. So I launched this weekend at Sip in the Spring. This weekend? This weekend, May 6th. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. And then the following weekend I'm actually partnering up with Savage Spectrum. And we're kind of doing like a co-sponsorship uh, for Barrel in the spring, which will be the 13th and 14th. You know, I'm only making so much wine every year. It's very, I want it to be this way. My, my goal is to never go above like 300 cases a year. Just once again, because I don't want this to be, I want this to be a piece of me. I don't want to lose that intimacy. So yeah, I do actually have the ability to do direct in-seller tastings and sales to consumers, as well as direct to, to consumer sales through online sales. Peripheriesellers.com is live now. Uh, right now, it's just giving you like the general rundown of things. And then once I kind of get like these next two weekends, whatever kind of volume I have left, I can actually start to kind of realize how I can move forward with allowing these wines to be released to a further public and a further offering. But if you think about next year or two years or five years, I hate that question, but I'll ask it to you. Do you see yourself having a tasting room? Is that something you'd be interested in so you can create this experience for people? Because right now, I guess they're going to catch you at an event. You had the dinner at Ordinary yeah. Fellow. Yeah. That's your – that's actually, now that I talk it out loud, if you just were an event-based winery, that gives you the opportunity every time to capture your audience. I'm never going to have a walk-up tasting room. I never want that. I want everything to be, once again, by appointment only – once again, secret handshake, that one, that one, two knock referral. If you know, you know, kind yeah. of thing. Hey, see Joe. Cause yeah. my friend told me this and, yeah. and actually that's, that's an experience. Well, it's not about the money, but you can charge for that. And B it's just such an experience for people. It's that well, it's, recommendation. It's the intimacy. Like yeah. once again, I want me to be able to focus on you a hundred percent of the time for as long or as little as we choose to do so. And I mean, if it comes to the point where like we tried a few bottles of wine, a few barrels, and then we call it good, that's good. But if we end up going a little bit further and I am pulling some stuff out of like my own cellar and we end up cooking dinner together, like it's part of the experience. I love that. You know? So it's like, 
why why even put that availability to people? Because I think if they have that, they expect it. I think if they don't have it, they want it. And that's I'd rather have people want an experience than just have a hundred percent carte blanche to it. Right. And they would have to seek you out, which means that they're super into it. And I'm not big on favorites, Joe. I, I, it's actually a, a mantra of mine not to separate my experiences into best and worst and to rank them. But I love this wine of yours. Thank you. Um, tell me about it. Tell us about it. There was, I think, a pretty good story behind this vintage. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the Melanger. So once again, French means blend or mix. So in my time of being in kitchens, I always worked for French chefs and I would always hear melange and melange. I'd just yell it in because like you weren't mixing things enough. This was kind of a beautiful mistake. This was intention intended to be a hundred percent Baco Noir carbonic maceration. So carbonic maceration, if you're not familiar with the term, is whole cluster gathering of grapes. You put it into an environment, you create like a, an anaerobic environment, which means without oxygen. One way to go about it is to put it into an enclosed environment, introduce CO2, which is basically an inert gas that's heavier than oxygen, begins to break the grapes down. Or the other way is to put it into a, a closed environment, allow the weight of the top grapes to break the bottom grapes down, create CO2 naturally. But what's happening is you're creating an intracellular fermentation. That's an old school method, it's right? It's a very old I school method. I traveled to Georgia once, the country, yep. and the Quevery wines. Right, exactly. That was essentially, they would have these big clay pots underground, right. shovel grapes in, and just let, let it take care of let itself. Let it take care of itself. So you're practicing some of the oldest winemaking techniques. Here. Yeah, you know, those Quaveries in Georgia and stuff like that, like a lot of times they were doing, that's where the orange wine movement started also, like the skin contact whites, because they were doing the same thing essentially, like just throwing a bunch of white grapes into a vat, letting it all happen. You therefore create like the uh, the extraction of the anthocyanins, the phenolics of the skins. But traditional winemaking, what you do is you break the skin, you allow the juice, juice to kind of free itself. And then that juice coming in contact with the outside of the grape, therefore you get your extraction of your color and your flavors and your tannins and stuff like that. But also from seeds and stems as, as well. But with this, we're allowing an intracellular fermentation to happen. So we're allowing the fermentation to happen within the grape berries. So once enough CO2 builds up, once enough like kind of like acid or sugar and fermentation happens inside the berry, the berry begins to burst, therefore creating like an external fermentation. But you don't produce a lot of alcohol off carbonic maceration. You get to about 2 to 3% alcohol, and then eventually you either go directly to press or you break the skins and then go to press or whatever. So this is a funny story. Like I harvested about a thousand pounds of Baco Noir. And I realized that if you start off with hot, warm grapes for carbonic maceration, it, it speeds up the process. Well, the Talbots being as busy as they are, a thousand pounds of Baco Noir was like pretty much last on their list for a Saturday afternoon. So they eventually got to it around one or two o'clock in the afternoon. It was like 110 degrees outside. I ended up getting these ripping hot grapes. I mean, like literally warm to the touch. I had two bins that were anaerobic bins that hold 500 pounds a piece. I ended up shoveling 500 pounds in each bin, called it good, was super excited to see what happened. After about a 12 hour day of us hand pressing everything for periphery, is that a fun experience? It's incredible. Are you guys having some wine during it? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I mean. And, you know, like, um, number one's uh, wine 
associate winemaker is Merle Wallace from the Talbots, right? He's coming on the pod in a couple of weeks. Cool. Love Can't him. wait to talk to I him. I mean, cannot do this shit without that guy. Like the most... Talk about a renaissance, man. Jesus Christ. Yeah. The most legit Gonna peel dude. back some onion yeah. layers there. <laughs> yeah. I cannot wait to hear that. But man, <laughs> like periphery would not be periphery without him at all. Like I have the vision, this guy, he is the brains behind it. Anyways, we're leaving, we're cleaning up. I'm walking out the door. He runs out the door. He's like, Joe, like one of the bins is leaking. I'm like, what? So I, we walk in and there's the, gra- this, the grape juice is leaking. So there's this carbonic. That's kind of important. There's this Baco Noir <laughs> juice leaking all over the floor. And I'm like, well, fuck. So literally I'm just like, let's just shovel this extra 500 pounds into this bin. So now we're putting a thousand pounds into a 500 pound bin, essentially. Let me see if I can taste the oh fucking here. Of that <laughs> yeah, I think I can. That must've been horrifying. Well, so what happens is you so get one shot, you get one shot. So the next That's day it. I come in, I take the top off tons of CO2 blowing off. I'm like, wow, this is, this is already kicking off. This is going to be really cool. Let it sit. Come in the next day, tons of CO2 blowing off. Incredible. Come in the next day, pull the top off. Smells like vinegar. Ooh. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You're making me. booch. I'm making the booch. Yeah. So I basically reach into like the top, you know, foot, foot and a half of these grapes. They are boiling. I reach down to about two, two and a half feet. I mean, that juice is cold. I pull a big handful out. It's just lively. It's acidic. It's, it was insulated. Oh, my God. It's, oh. it's fruity tooty, bubble gum. So fun. So I'm like, fuck this. So I just start hand shoveling pounds, tens and tens of pounds of grapes off the top into a trash can. I'm counting cents every time I'm doing this. I'm like, because I can't press these. I can't do shit because the bacteria is in there. I'm just going to spread it. So anyways, I get to a point to where I end up making probably 60 gallons, 50 gallons of carbonic maceration Baco Noir, but I'm not going to lie. There was a bit of acetic acid bacteria in it. So I just kind of separate it. I keep it off to itself. I end up doing the same thing to a bit of chamberson going through carbonic maceration, which that grape lends itself incredibly well, especially if you do it right, to carbonic maceration. And then I ended up having a little bit of extra bulk wine that I was able to procure that I made from in the now defunct Plum Creek, okay. um, which was Cab Franc, Cab Saab, Petit Verdot Merlot. So I ended up basically taking that kind of infected, bastardized Baco Noir, blending it with that Chamberson, and then topping it off with said Vinifera and going through about seven months of neutral oak aging. And this is what we came up with. It's amazing, man. And you know what? That is what blows my mind about winemaking is that I heard something once that winemaking is troubleshooting. And because if there were just a recipe you could follow, then everybody would be a winemaker. But right. you could have, again, just the same grapes, same vines every year, but they're going to be different. And not only that, but once you get them in the tank, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, man. And so it's really... I make kombucha, you know that, and it's there is a little bit of doctoring we do. We want to make it a little sweeter, make it a little more tangy, whatever. But there's nothing like winemaking in that sense. Beer make people don't do it. Distilling right. doesn't do it. Winemaking is the only thing that's truly alive yeah. for a long time. Not even for the fermentation, but then you put it in the barrel, and okay, when do we when do we pick it? How do we ferment it? 
when do we pull it from the barrel? There's all these decision points. You must have an incredible notebook. Well, there's three aging cycles of wine also that people I think tend to forget about, right? Like the first and foremost is like primary fermentation. So you're taking a raw product, which is grapes and you're fermenting them and you're creating alcohol. So that's your first aging cycle, right? And whether you choose to go with like a natural fermentation or you choose to like inoculate with yeast, you're going to create a nuance and a flavor profile immediately off of that. You're going to create what, what life that wine is going to basically kind of establish. The next is either tank aging or barrel aging. And so from there, like we're going to either go into new oak barrels or second use or third or neutral, or we're going to go into tank. We're going to do whatever the fuck it is that we do. But at that time, this is when the wine kind of creates what it's going to be, who it's going to be, what it wants to be. It's moving around freely. So it's going from infancy into teenage, into like young adulthood, maybe even to like advanced age. But you create such a movement for that wine and you create such a like easy living generally for that wine. We go into our third and final resting stage, which is bottle aging. So now you're taking something that has a large volume. It moves about freely. It's, it has no constraints except the four walls that it's in or just the barrel or whatever it is. Is it really a party in there? It's it, a party, man. It's like a living, breathing thing. Is it really thing. moving around? Like, what do you mean by I that? I mean, it's is not it, like you don't see it actively moving. It's not like but, a toilet, right? But honestly, like, <laughs> no, like a wine, like you can, I mean, I taste my wines every day. Not my barrels, but my tank age wines. I'll taste them every day. And every day they will taste a little different. And then you taste your barrels, you know, as you're topping them probably at least once a month. So you go through them and you taste every barrel and you can see how things are progressing or stalling or like there's such a story to be told. And then now you take all those things and you put them into a bottle and you take away all their movement. You take away all of their air, their life, and you put a cork in it and it freaks the hell out. (laughs) <laughs> and that's where, you know, some people say that's where the term bottle shock comes from. And some people are like, there's no such thing as bottle shock. Well, I mean, personally, like I have tasted a wine as soon as it goes into a bottle and it does not taste the, like the wine I just, I had a, a day before. Yeah. What does that mean? So you put it in there. I remember the movie bottle shock, but explain that term. So you put it in there and. Well, you're taking something away from a large volume, like literally, like say you have a thousand gallons and now you have a bottle that's only 750 mils. You took it away from its friends. You took it away from its life. You took a very small part of it and you broke it up into this many thousand pieces by either going through a filter or going through a hose or whatever. And you compressed it and you took away life, which is the ingress of oxygen and the exchange of, 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 of CO2. Is it getting oxygen in a barrel? So you have micro ox essentially, so a little ethanol is escaping while it Okay, so the bottle it. is the first time it's totally devoid of this oxygen. It's the first time because you sparge the bottle, like you give it inert gas, yeah. and then some other, and then once you put the cork in, it vacuums. So it's like, like it's it's whatever it's it is is what it is at that point, right? But this, in my opinion, is the most important aging cycle of a bottle of wine. You need to let it calm down and figure out what it wants to be needs to find Zen of being so constrained, like some bottles we should never release for a year. Yeah. How do you decide that? Because here's again, yet another step, what you can taste it out of the barrel or the tank and this is great. Now I bottle it. Okay. Well, if I open it today, it'll taste like that. But if I wait a week, is it still going to taste the same as to it? Like how much anxiety do you have over all this? Oh dude, bottling, 
bottling is one of the, like the worst days ever for a winemaker's life because anything that could go wrong goes wrong on a bottling day. Like what? Machine failures, hose failures, pump failures, infection in either the bottling line, the hoses, in the bottles. Like just you lose sleep the day before a bottling run and then you lose sleep the day of the bottling run and you probably lose sleep a week after the bottling run and then not until you could go through like a week later and then a month later and then maybe even a year later and see that your corks weren't pushed and things don't taste sour and things don't look brown or oxidized then you finally are able to kind of finally relax and then once you release them you start losing sleep again because then are people going to like this is it going to taste good are they getting what I was trying to like express here? Totally. Well, that's so. what I'm saying. So if you like it, have you ever tasted a wine and been like, I don't quite like it yet, but if I put it in the bottle and wait six months, I will. How do you know what it's going to taste like? You can't control once you sell it. Somebody may sell it for two years, two months, two weeks. You have no idea when the consumer is going to drink it. How do you bottle based on that? I don't bottle until I actually like it. And so that's kind of hard because sometimes like a wine shouldn't be pushed this long or this far, but not until it tastes the right way should it go into a bottle. But there's been plenty of times where I've tasted it like a week or a month after. And I'm like, I, fuck, I don't like this one bit. Really? There has been times oh, yeah. where you bottle it and then open the bottle a month later and yeah. you're saying this is not what I was trying exactly. to do. Exactly. That's got to be a horrible feeling. Yeah, but luckily like the, most of the times they're reds. So like even at Plum Creek, I realized that these at least have a year, if not two, of bottle aging. So I, I guarantee you that these are going to become something very special and very unique by the time they get opened. And that was a really special thing about Plum Creek is that we had enough volume and enough vintage kind of variation to where we could actually lay stuff down uh, before we released it for at least a year or two. I guarantee you like these 22 wines that I made, I don't know whoever took them, we might not ever even see the, the light of day. Like they just might turn into blends. But some of the 19s and some of the 20s that I made, or not even the 21s, or the 20s. No, the 21s. What year is it? It's 23, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we, we made no red wine in 20. So some of the 19s probably won't see the light of day from Plum Creek until next year. But how do you calculate what it's going to taste like three years later in the bottle? I don't get that. Is there a, a science? Be, uh, there must be. I mean, it's just, I think once again, it's just kind of like dealer's choice here, right? Like I'm the one that's making the choice because it tastes good now. And my anticipation is that it's going to taste this good, if not better by the time we open this bottle. Because once again, we're no longer allowing the exchange to happen between the oak and the 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 environment, right? So what causes the aging if there's no oxygen, no oak? The settling down, the... Um, uh, the integration, it, 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 it has nowhere else to go. Now it just turns into itself. So it starts meditating. Yes, exactly. Okay. It yeah. finds peace and now it just basically integrates. Okay. And so it becomes like a more, uh, intense concentrated version of itself. Now, if you were to, in this example where you tasted the bottle a month later and didn't like it, it wasn't expressing what you thought, would that be something where you would then say, if you had more in stock, you would advise people to drink it right away? Or how do you deal with that as a winemaker? Or is it one of those things? I know when I make kombucha, one of my horrible habits is I'll go just buy my kombucha. It's quality control, but I'll go buy my kombucha somewhere and I'll taste it. And it's a anxious experience, whether it's good or bad. But 
sometimes if I'm like, I could have done this better, it's it's hard. It's, it's, it's the creative process, right? We're always harder on ourselves. And a lot of times what people tell me when I express this to them, it's like, hey, look, I didn't know what you were trying to create. So it tastes good to me. Just because you envisioned it to be this tangy or that sweet or this way doesn't mean I'm thinking that when I taste it. So I got to imagine as a winemaker, you have to learn to let it go. You do. But every year I make wine, I always tell myself I could have made this better. Every well, year. that's why you will be better, right? <laughs> yeah. Is that the creative process? I mean, you? how about when you reach, reach when you reach like the ultimate point? Like, say, if like you do like which is unheard of, like do a hundred point wine through every single like douchebag judge, um, and then you get recognized across the world for like having this world class wine. You're still going to tell yourself, "I could have made this better." It's just how it goes, right? Like you never believe that something is as good as the people are telling you, because once again, you envision it to be something completely different. And so everything I've made so far, whether it be for Carlson or Plum Creek or even Periphery, I'm happy with the way that these things turned out. But at the same time, I'm always like, how do I make it better? What do you think about these wine competitions? You're submitting a wine to a totally random person who probably went out the night before and judge. Okay, I'm stereotyping, but maybe some of them are carrying big egos with them because they have the power and they're the expert. There's this kind of idea of playing God in a way. And I'm curious of how much those competitions, A, they obviously have an impact because wineries flaunt these awards. But as a true winemaker at your core, do you worry about winning awards? Yes and no. I think, honestly, like being a winemaker, you're somewhat egotistical. You have to be. Like you're an well, artist. Oh, we know you are, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, like why else would you make wine or a product for no other reason than for someone or some people or loads of people or loads of someones to enjoy it? Totally. Right? If, uh, look. I'm a writer. I'm right. as egotistical as they come. I'm a right. Hemingway guy. If you're the best writer, declare yourself the best. Pound right. your fists on the table. Exactly. You know? So you got to have some of that. But now too. having gone through a few competitions and really kind of cr- recreating like one year where we do incredibly well and then recreating the same exact thing the following year and then having just being torn apart and not even placing in a competition. I'm like, it's so subjective and it's such bullshit. And then even seeing how judges like wrote about the Colorado wine scene recently, where this one guy came out in this huge like article, he's, he's like this all to do judge. And he's like, I'm just going to tell you if you're in the Colorado wine scene and you want to be taken seriously, do not make anything but vinifera. So it's like, well, you're already basically telling me like you're, 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 you're judging us before you even like before judge the us. judging. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, well, why even take part of this? But so I don't feel like, I mean, I do feel like that points and judgments definitely sell wine, but also that's for like a lot of times the unknowns, like people can walk into a wine shop without knowing shit about wine and they'll say, Oh, wine specter says wine totally. spectator says this is 94 points. I might as well buy that for this dinner party I'm going to. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's very powerful. So in one sense, you need to win the awards. On the other sense, it may or may not be important to you. Somebody my size, it does not make any sense for me to get high points because I cannot back up points. Like if I'm getting a 96 point on this Melanger, I don't have enough volume to like back up the need for that. Right. Unless I sold every single bottle for $2,000 a piece. Which could that increase the value of the wine? 
Well, absolutely. Okay. Like a, a point system could, but then once again, like who am I trying to sell this wine to? I'm I mean, trying I'm to sell. I'm not going to buy it if it's $2,000. <laughs> but we, what I'm saying is yeah. like, I'm trying to sell to those in the know. Once again, like this whole periphery project is not meant to be for the masses. It's meant to be for those in the know. In the know. Well, I want to get to the name and, and hear your story behind that. But just one more train of thought question. How is Colorado wine doing in these competitions compared to California? And are they, is it really a blind tasting where the judges are comparing them equally? Or is it, I see all these wineries around with all these medals and I'm just thinking, wow, it seems like Palisades winning a lot of medals. Well, I don't are, think we're being, I don't think we're being judged next to California wines. So we're doing kind of, Colorado kind of cup say. sort of thing. With the Colorado governor's cup, right? Okay. But you know, I don't know if this is true or not. I've heard some things that the judges come in and they have them basically say like this is your baseline so we're gonna we're gonna try you on a california cabernet sauvignon and what this does is, that mean try uh, you on compare well, you this, against this is what like this is what a, a cab should taste like oh they define what it should taste and like. so therefore like if a judge comes in and doesn't taste like these fruit forward jammy nuances that a lot of california cabs carry Colorado cabs are truly like a, I mean, it's more like a French style cab. Like we, we're, we're, we should be picked younger. Like we should be picked at a higher acid level and like less sugar because we have such concentration of heat here. I feel like if you allow it to sit for too long, we just turn into this big flabby, high pH, low acid thing that you have to manip manipulate the shit out of. Whereas like a cab sauve or a cab franc should like offer these nuances like of black pepper and smoke and uh, the methoxypyrazine, which is like green bell pepper or jalapeno or hatch green chili. Like these, these really cool kind of crazy flavors that Colorado produces in their grapes, just like Riesling and reverse trimeters. Like we shouldn't be overly sweet like we should be a bit zippy and have some lychee fruit and like some white flour and some honeycomb and a little bit of curd and stuff inside there like but it's it's a shame to pull in like these these grapes from other states and use those as like the baseline as judging like uh i guess what's the word i'm looking for well it limits creativity overall and to make an analogy in the writing world we have a ton of competitions right. where you would submit for the best short story. The They have all these books that come out every year, the best travel writing of 2022. Right. And I've never entered one of those competitions. One, because it costs to enter. And I don't ever believe that if you have something, you don't pay to be judged for right. me. Like, why would I ever do that? I'm not going to pay you to judge me. I'm going to give you money. And then you're going to tell me whether I'm good or not. That, scenario has never worked with me one two to your point it becomes you're applying to a formula i'm the best travel writer of 2022 within this box that all the other previous books have said it has to have these things and people are reading the previous books and submitting things that are just like that so i know in my heart if you're submitting to that competition you're just submitting that based on what you've seen has won previously. Yeah. You're not being true to yourself and creating just what you're saying. Why would you want to create a cab that's just like all the others that have been created just to win a competition? As a true creative, I've really just tried to avoid that. Don't pay to be judged and don't be judged by someone who wants to put you in a box. It makes no sense. Well, that's the thing. It's like I reached out to a few winemakers just recently and it was like, hey, what's it? 
take to get into like, you know, Wine Spectator or Sunset Magazine or whatever, just to kind of see where I stand. And they're like, dude, it's really expensive and you have to give away a lot of wine. And I'm like, well, first of all, I only made, currently I have 74 cases of wine bottled, right? And I have two festivals coming up. And then otherwise, I want to be able to open it up to like online sales and people that are really interested. Like, why would I give, you know, 74 times that's like a thousand bottles you got yeah i mean like, sake, yeah yeah like, so if you're giving I, away why would i give away even four cases of wine to somebody to like literally like sit there and tear it apart and then make me feel bad about if something? they even taste it if they even taste it and then when everybody else that's tasting it's like dude this is fucking incredible like how could i buy two cases well i'm already like ahead of the game just by people wanting to have it as opposed to me wanting to try to sell it to like some advertisement or to like some judgment group judgment sucks like i don't mind being judged but i'm not once again to your point i'm not going to pay you to judge me i'm not going to pay you to insult me totally and i'm i mean and if you want to like boast if you want to buy my bottle and insult me sure if you want to like build me up i'm gonna pay you yeah i mean if you want to build me up and like maybe feel good about myself then come buy my shit and then advertise for it like I think these big companies and these cups and these judgments, they should they should like reverse it. They shouldn't make you beg for their attention. They should beg for your attention and say like, you know, we're only going to choose this many wineries this year because these are the ones we really want to try. I think what you're doing is smart because as a traveler, when I go somewhere, I'm looking for these kind of experiences. I think if you put on Airbnb experiences a – wine tasting experience you're going to get a ton of interest and that's that's not quite in the know right that's you're going to be advertising right so maybe that moves a little bit away from what you want to do but people want experiences that are a little bit your general traveler doesn't want to work that hard that's why roadside big places work because like oh this is easy let's go there uh i get that I'm, i'm not going to get into that debate right now but Intrepid travelers are looking to go a little deeper. A winery like yours would be perfect for them. In fact, I remember when I went to London last year, you were telling me about some little wine cave. I, ultimately, I, it didn't work out for me to go, but it was really referral only. Oh, yeah. And when you're a small winery with limited, that's the beauty of being small. Right. You can be picky about, you know you're going to sell it. Yep. It's Now, what experience do I create with my limited bottles and you have a lot more flexibility than it's almost counterintuitive a big winery doesn't have that because they need to move it you got to get it out get it out get it out get out you can say well hold on i got a thousand bottles here i know they're going to sell so how do i sell them in the most interesting way that makes me connected and builds lifelong customers exactly so you have an amazing opportunity tell me about periphery how did you come up with that name periphery sellers so really the goal was to find a place in a, an operating like wineries like pl- space already so it's like just operate on their periphery so like you know the talbots what they're doing right now uh plum creek if i was able to sign on with sue allowing this any other like large or just even small or to medium sized winery that would give me a corner where i could operate in the periphery of like their actual business I would be that periphery seller. And that's how I came up with it. But and then, to my understanding, it's come to mean so much more than that. Well, and it really has because like the style At least style I of, view it as so much more than well, that. Well, it's, it's, it's just kind of like that double entendre. Like, 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 like it's, du, a periphery seller's wines outside the ordinary. So like 
I mean, you could take it for as simple as you want. Like it's the periphery cellar and we're not making the wines that are normally made here. Yeah, but that sounds like you're growing on someone's hip. Right. You're you're doing wines, I'm going to quote you, your branding, <laughs> outside the ordinary, you yeah. know, right? Yeah. So come on, dive into that. That's what the meaning of it, I think. And that's exactly what it is. I'm trying to do just things that are just basically, I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not saying I'm recreating anything or I'm not creating anything. I'm recreating some old techniques that have been maybe forgotten about. Maybe I am kind of like cutting the cloth on a few different things that people would ever, that would people would say like, you should never do that. Like that's unconventional. Like why would you ever take a chance on doing that? I'm just trying to do things once again, away from the norm outside the ordinary. So making white wines in the style of reds and reds in the style of white. Let's, let's make a, uh, let's make a rosé with like just taking um, some red lees. So some wet, red wine waste and then putting into some white wine and creating our, our rosé that way, our oak aging uh, rosé, which a lot of people don't do. How risky are these decisions for you though? Because given your, limited resources. I don't mean that in a negative way. Just you're a small winery. If you take a risk and it doesn't pan out, are you worried about that? You know, as far as volume goes, it's like keeping a fish tank, right? A smaller fish tank is going to cause a lot more issues for you when it comes to like chemical instability and fuck ups than a larger fish tank. Volume changes everything. Okay. It's easier to like lose control at a smaller, smaller volume of things than it is at a, at a larger but at the same time, it also kind of saves me because, like, if I only make 60 gallons of this and only make 300 bottles, I'm not out an exuberant amount of money. Right, but you get one shot a year, so but then you're out of wine. But, I mean, I can either I, – I mean, for 300 bottles or whatever, I can find a different way or I can just pop those bottles and, and it to, add it to next year's blend and try to make it work the right way. I'm not looking at thousands of gallons or tens of thousands of gallons. So it's like this. This is it's just real like this real delicate balance because I want to make it right the first time, albeit along the way I'm going to make some fuck ups and hopefully they're, they're good fuck ups and like they're good. Happy there are mistakes. no fuck ups. They're only happy <laughs> little accidents. Happy little accidents, right? right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, hopefully those things actually play to my favor. If not, I'll just hold off and not release. And then once again, it builds the uh, anticipation because. Hopefully I can build the anticipation with the people that I draw in immediately towards like, wow, what you produced on such a small level, can we get more of that? Well, not until next time. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you decide what to make next year? So. You know, I think I have a few things established that I kind of really like. Probably do a Blanqui Blanco again. So I'll do a blend of two um, white grapes. This year was like really unique and special because I actually ended up I actually ended up having a blanc e blanco or just a blanc e blanc. So I had a Villard blanc and a Sauvignon blanc blend, which is like the blanc e blanc Valley Verde. I think I'll continue to make like a, a really light bodied, high acid, low alcohol like white blend. It just works well. I'm also with this grape that we tried earlier, the Atasca. I'm getting a bit of weight of that, and I think I want to do something a little special and unique with that, just because I really like it. It's a, it's a special thing to me. I actually gonna I'm going to bring it a bit more vinifera this year, so I'm anticipating getting in some really nice Merlot, which periphery is actually the goal is to work primarily with cold hardy cultivars or hybrids, and use vinifera as blending grapes. But Mesa Park recently closed their tasting room and they're no longer really going to practice winemaking and 
in homage to... I heard that. Yeah, they're going all ag now. Yeah, in homage to Brandon and Laura, I am hoping to get a 1,000 pounds off of that vineyard and to just do 100% Merlot. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be a really sexy kind of thing. And, you know, Merlot, it's this fucking sucks that... Um, sideways. Sideways. Yeah. I'm not drinking any fucking Merlot. I know. And then the movie, and then the final line at the end of the movie that he liked the most was a Merlot. Well, because he wanted to get laid. Well, but he liked it the most. Like, I mean, Pinot. Jesus Christ. If anything, this is a Pinot. This melange is a Pinot, right? Like, it's a, it's either a Beaujolais Nouveau, it's a Gamay, but it's very much Pinot-ish to me. Which, to me, actually, Pinot is like my least favorite grape. Like, it really is. So when that movie came out, I lived in Santa Barbara. Okay. So it was very close to home for yeah. us. You know, the whole movie is in the San Inez Valley, San which Inez, is just yep. behind Santa Barbara. And it was a hoot and a holler. But I, I would say that tipped me off to kind of – it got me into wine culture. Yeah. The book is great, too. I don't know if you've read the book. I like the book more than the movie. Of course. But I also yeah. really love Paul Giamatti. <laughs> yeah. No, he's great. Yeah. Everything he does is like gold. So, But, yeah, I mean, it was unfortunate because – Merlot, to me, is like one of the sexiest grapes out there. I mean, it has such a long history, and it, ha- I mean, it literally holds its weight. Well, why did he hate it so much? I think it was just because it was overdone, and okay. then he was a Pinophile, and the Pinot was like that newish thing, you know? So, like, let's go back to, like, Michael Brown from Costa Brown and stuff. Like, these guys were, like, the Pinot, like, pioneers, and Pinot became very, like, gauche and, like, in California. Like California bougie kind exactly. of Exactly. Okay. So, it's like... Let's let's all drink Pinots and everybody fucking made Pinots and even like that road trip I did recently, like I cannot believe how many places I went to, like Ken Brown and then Santa Inez, which was like a hundred percent Pinot. Like there was like fourteen Pinots that I would go to and try and I'm like Everywhere you go. Like, are you kidding me? Like yeah. Pinots are great, but it's like my least favorite and your entire menu is Pinot Noir. Right. Well, that's the thing about tasting in a wine country. If you have the same exact thing on every menu you go, yeah, it's to some degree it's fun because you, you can compare the varietals at each vineyard. But as a traveler, I'm kind of like, all right, well, I kind of want to go somewhere that's just doing something different. I would tell you what, though. Somebody can steal this in Palisade. I think if, we, if there was one winery in town that specifically like – focused on one varietal and did, and did tastings from every winery right. in that varietal or even that own. would be amazing right like let's just focus on cabernet sauvignons and just did an incredible just cross the board tasting of cab sobs whether it be your own from different vintages or whether it be the same vintage from different vineyards and different like oakings and like different styles of winemaking or just having all 2022 cab sobs from every vineyard and every winery in the Grand Valley. It's a great idea. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Here's one thing I want to ask you. How much does your wine cost? Anywhere between 28 and $34 a bottle. Okay. That that seems reasonable for given your size. You only have 1,000 yeah, bottles, so et cetera. Much. When I lived in California, this is going back more than a decade, 2009, 2010, 11, 12. Tasting was five bucks. I don't remember wine being that expensive. I remember it mostly being in the teens. Here in Palisade, I really want to support local wineries. Some wineries are very expensive. There are some reds that are in the 40s, 50 bucks, and that's not even getting into the reserve good stuff where you would try it and be like, yeah, I I want this. Why is Palisade wine so expensive given that it's not a premier wine region? 
I think many reasons. First and foremost, where did they get those grapes from? Like you have to like find out which red you're drinking first of all. Like, is it actually from Palisade or did they actually have to import it that year? Like, which vintage is it? So, if they bought the grapes from California, for example, be a bit more it would be more expensive. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Also, in the same regard, if that winery stayed 100% Colorado grown and there was only so much compared to what they had the year or two before that, you only have so little to go around. You have to kind of knock your costs up because to like make it worth the while but either way then if you're importing it it's expensive if you're staying here it's expensive because there's not a lot of grapes yep. so are we just in this awkward time where we're growing and there's just kind of not enough to quite go around and then ultimately i think we're worth it like like we have to start taking palisades seriously we can't just keep giving these wines away for nothing like i'll tell you what I mean, charging for tastings has only been a recent thing within the, say, past handful of years, right? Like, some of these wineries refused to finally get on board. But I think what happened was is we were at, at a point to where people were coming in and they were so used to getting free tastings. And even when I was at Carlson, there would be times where we had 21 wines on the list and people wouldn't come in and taste all 21 wines and not pay a cent no for kidding. it. No oh, kidding. Or buy like a, a beef stick or a pack of crackers. Oh, get out of here. And 21? Like, and so what I'm saying is like, uh, well, what you're saying is, is that you enjoyed yourself, but there's no value to the, what you just tried. You know. Well, they're coming in just... Just to get fucked. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're coming I mean, in to take advantage. Exactly. Right. That's that's not right either. I, I believe that you should have a cost for tasting if you don't buy a bottle. I think you should have a cost for tasting regardless. I mean, I, mean, I think if you buy bottles, maybe we can like talk about getting rid of that tasting I mean, what cost. if I if I come in and it I taste... It costs me money to make that wine. I get it. I get it. But if I come in and I taste five wines yeah. and then I buy a case from you... I'm not going to charge you for a tasting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I, yeah. If I buy one bottle, maybe if we have three tastings and we buy one bottle. I'm charging okay, for those tastings. Charges for two tastings or three. <laughs> no, tastings. I'm charging for you that are. tasting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, how much is the bottle? Well, I get it. Be, well, it depends too because I, again, <laughs> this is the traveler in me and, and if I'm coming in and you're providing me an experience, if you're giving me the tasting and you're personally explaining each wine to me and you're giving me an experience for the tasting... Okay, I buy that. If I'm sitting out in your beautiful lawn, looking at the views, listening to music, and you're pouring me a tasting, I'll pay for the tasting. But if I'm in some stuffy tasting room with some pourer that isn't telling me anything, they're like, here's our cab, and walks away and doesn't give me the time of day and is checking their phone, then yeah, it's like, no. I want the tasting to be an experience. But the advantage of you living in town is is that you get to like decipher which ones are good tastings and not. For the general person that's coming into Palisade, they don't know the good tasting rooms versus the bad ones. And so how do you draw that line? Because like you know the ins and outs of Palisade. Like you know which tastings you should go to where you're going to get like that little hookup and that extra glass of wine and the involvement from the winemaker or the wine associate versus like you're walking into a stuffy tasting and all you're getting is like three or four ounces of wine and then you're out. How do you know the difference, right? And then... Okay, that's fair enough. But should tasting cost $10 or five? I think a tasting should probably cost the price of... Let me think. Once again, how many wines are being poured in that tasting? Is it five? Is it seven? Is it nine? 
is it three? Fair enough. Yeah. It should be the price of the amount of ounces that you're pouring. So like if you're getting seven pours, that's basically a glass and a half, right? That, what I heard is that Palisade, you, like you said, used to have the free tastings, right. but that people took advantage of it. So now it's gone, right? I don't think it's taking advantage. I think it's just like not recognizing the worth of what these things are, which goes into a bottle of wine versus like having this amount of bottles of wine opened that I'm I'm trying you on. That's fair enough. And so like on a Saturday, like I might have 200 customers or I might have 20 customers, but the bottles are still open. I see. So it's like, well, I don't have to waste these things or I'm going to go home with them and I'm going to drink the, the remainder. Like I'm not complaining. I guess the tasting room associate or the winemaker, right? But at the same time, I still have to put prices into like that product that I am opening those bottles for. So if you open a bottle... You can't taste on it the next day or the two. Oh days no! Like if you treat it the right way, like a red wine, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a total of like four to five days of life, as long as it's being gassed or cared for and whatever, and as long as there's not too much headspace in the bottle as we go through these tastings, right? I mean, me personally, like if I have a bottle of red wine, I get to like below a half a bottle of red wine and it's two or three days old, we should not be pouring that as a taster. That should just go home with the staff. Why? Is it is it well, you're funky like, there's, Well, the bottle's been open. Like, you know, you're creating oxygen ingress once again. You're just like just kind of spoiling the wine. I feel like I do that at home, though, because um, I'll open a bottle of wine. I'll have one glass. And but then that's you at home. I cork it, and I have you it already, the next night. You already bought the wine. Like, you already have the wine. I know, there. but am I drinking horrible wine? No. It still tastes good. You're still drinking it, right? Well, I'm drinking it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're saying, and you're, I'm asking for your expertise, you're saying it's not that great. Well, from a sales point of view, and also from, like, just a tasting point of view, like, the wine begins to degrade, after a certain point. So the general rule of thumb is always like four to five days for a bottle of red wine between two to three days for a bottle of white wine being opened in a tasting room or even in a restaurant. As long as it's treated the right way, like a Coravin system is ideal, obviously, because like you're inserting an inert gas into it. A Coravin system is not like the end all save all to every bottle of wine. I think Coravin systems personally, like in my opinion, the things I've tasted through Coravin, they're good for about four weeks tops and they begin to degrade. Um, but if you're like, if you're vacuuming or if you're inserting gas, do you recommend vacuuming? I see all those things on the market, but is that bullshit? Well, or we... you know, not of us, not all of us can have CO2 dispensers at home. I know you open a bottle of wine, you throw away the cork, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm yeah, not. <laughs> What's the point of opening a bottle of wine? <laughs> yeah. So are you, are you a total wine snob? I, I got to be honest. I'm a friend of yours, and I would never bring a bottle of wine to your house because I'd be scared. I'm not a total wine snob. I think I give the wine its worth. So I know what you're bringing me generally, and I know if you're bringing me like between this and this. Like it's not even about price range. I think it's just about region, the grape itself, the producer. I know what to expect a lot of times. And I'm not saying like I'm a know-all, like whatever. Like I have people that have completely fucking surprised me when they bring me bottles of wine. And I'm like, oh, God, it's like from this region. It's like whatever. And I'm like, yeah, this is going to be horrible. But people probably think that about Colorado. But of course. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like asking a chef if they're a, a snob and they go to McDonald's. Of course. How great is this burger? Well, if I'm hungry enough, this is the best burger I ever had. Yeah. But how do you shop? I mean, should people shop on price for wine? 
or no. when you go into the store no. because Julie no. and I will go in, we'll look at all these wines and we shop on price just because we can't, we're not going to buy, we'll buy a $30 bottle of wine if we go to a winery in Palisade and we taste it and we like it and we have an interaction with you or whoever and say, okay, yeah, this is fun and yeah. we'll save it, uh, open it whenever. But if I go into a general grocery store or wine store, I'm $20 or less. Well, you know, it's for me, like the states are so weird because once again, like it goes into production, it goes into availability, it goes into marketing, right? It's where, not like Europe where you can get three euro. Well, some of the of best wines wine. I ever had, like I can go to the grocery store and I can buy like a two euro bottle of wine uh, you know, from Spain or Portugal or Italy or wherever the fuck it is. But why at. is that? Why, why is? Because it's so, there's so much production. There's so much volume. And it's done Isn't really California well. and New York two of the largest producers in the world? Of yeah, wine? but imagine the marketing that goes into those bottles of wine in the United States to like get past every single other. Like, isn't person. New York the number one, like the largest producer of wine? But re- no, I think California and then New York's like number two. Washington okay. State. I mean, Texas is up there. Texas. You know, oh, Texas is like one of the top ones. Uh, Oregon. I think it's like I don't know in this specific order, but I think at one time it was like California. Maybe Washington, New York State, Oregon, and Texas. I might not have this right, but I know those are the top five states for production. But now remember, in the United States, not only do you have American wines that are being made and produced and marketed, but you also have an importation of French and Australian South American French yeah I mean so you have all sorts of wines so every winery in the United States needs to like not only compete with the wines in the US but also with the wines that are being imported into the US so they US wineries have to pay more for marketing than European wineries I would think think? so absolutely like how do you stand out like how many times do you bought a wine just due to the label Often, yeah, I would say. I mean, as long as the label corresponds with within my price range. And then, how many times have you been impressed with the label but not the wine? Many times. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like you go to like Europe and like you literally go to like a grocery store and you spend two euros on a bottle of wine in a grocery store. And like, dude, my little cellar over here. Every time I've gone to like this incredible restaurant, either in France or Italy or Spain or Portugal or whatever, Germany, I'm like. Oh my God, this bottle of wine's amazing. Where do I buy this? So like, go to like the Aldi next door. It's five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, now that you mention it, and I could be wrong, but I feel like European wine sections are a lot less flashy. They're not. It's harder to yeah. decide because there's not as much into the label and the marketing and right. all that. And they, I mean, what some, some, some countries don't even allow american wines to be imported because there's so much production being done in country that all you're going to get is spanish wines or italian wines or german wines like you're never going to find an american wine you're not going to find a boda box or a mandavi or whatever the hell it is like some michael david petite petite shit happening <laughs> right so it's like it's incredible so it's like we in the u.s like we're it's really cool that we have such a plethora of wine, but we're also so muddled and so diluted because we have so many other variables that we have to deal with. So how would you advise someone to approach a wine section at a grocery store, your neighborhood liquor store? Should you decide on a varietal first? Should you... I Which mean, grape are you looking for? Actually, first... What if you if, don't know? Actually, even before that, find out where you're shopping from. 
me personally, like living out here in Western Colorado, there's probably like two, three places, me being who I am with the wine industry. As far as a liquor store, there's like two or three places I will shop from and on the entire Western store. Tell us. So Cooper Wine and Spirits in Glenwood. Oh, you go to all the way Glenwood. Dude, Kevin over there has this amazing selection. Who he pulls in and out of there. His selection is so concentrated and so unique. I've been turned on to so many different, like, just small vintners that he somehow finds and procures, like, two or three cases of or or 22 bottles of. Like, he had he got turned into Jolie Lead, Scott Schultz, out of, like, Sebastopol at one point, and then uh, Healdsburg. Pax Wines, I got turned on to him. Evan Lewandowski, Idlewild, stuff like this, like, all out of California, which are, like, very small producers. Some of my favorite vintners in the world – I got turned on to by by Kevin at Cooper Wine and Spirits in Glenwood. Uh, Mishi down at Ridgeway Liquors, this German gal, has this incredible palette. Once again, she has created this this palette and this like this catalog of these things that she'll impress the people coming in from Texas and California while still blowing the minds of the the heads that come in there looking for something completely different. And so it's the proprietor of the store. So if we go into just generic liquor store that's selling a bunch of things, they may or may not have a strong wine program. If we go to say Cooper's, we know that he is actively looking for small things that are different. Right. So getting to know your local store. Yeah. And then T here in Grand Junction at Redlands Liquors over by like, um, was it Broadway and uh, over by like uh, Handlebar and T- stuff? T E A T I. Yeah, how do you say it? He's he's a Korean guy or Asian. I don't know. Sorry, I don't. You know, whatever. <laughs> There's an edit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Redland Liqu- Redlands Liquors. He does an incredible job. Absolutely. Okay. It's not the greatest, but there has been some incredible things in there. He had, he's had bottles of Cayuse, which I've been on the waiting list for for like three years to get a bottle of their Syrah. And he actually has bottles of Cayuse like sitting in the reserve section to purchase. But how do you know that these places are good? I mean, you got the recommendation, I guess. Once you get in there, okay, let's say I know the proprietor is a savvy person. Does a good wine shop let you taste? Is there any attributes to a good wine shop to let you know that, okay, this is a serious place that I can trust? So the only place that really allowed me to do that ever was Cooper Wine and Spirits. Like on Fridays and Saturdays, they somehow like were able to kind of manipulate the situation because they are an actual liquor store. But I think you can find a licensing kind of like loophole to where you can, you can actually open up as a tasting room for like so many hours per the week. And so like they do five to seven every Friday and Saturday where like they will highlight small winemakers and small wineries. So you can go in there on Fridays and Saturdays. And it's, it's not only limited to like wines, like they'll do whiskeys and scotches and gins and stuff like that. So like on Friday, they might do like a really small batch winemaker. And on Saturday, they'll, they'll do like a really small batch gin maker. But hands down, Cooper Wine and Spirits, Kevin, Kevin and Sharon, just absolutely incredible. Like I've never seen a wine selection like this in the United States, or at least, in, I mean, it's just, it's. Haven't you been to Total Wine, bro? <laughs> Come on. What do you think of Total Wine? It's happy land. I mean, it's the Disney world of wines, but once again, it's like. Well, if you go in without, it's the Disney world of wine in the sense if you go in with no If you knowledge, have no idea. But 
I would think someone like you would go into Total Wine and be in Happy Land. But it would also be like periphery wines being put on the wine list, say, at the French Laundry or at any other large winery like that has this extensive wine li- or this restaurant that it's has meaningless wine. Like, like why am i here well i'm just talking i'm not talking about for your perspective i'm just saying as a consumer going there is great because you but have- what i'm saying is is like the ones that really count are lost in the fold because there's so much more yeah distractions of, yeah yeah there's so and many. there's like so many placards like staff pick well 93 points all the, all the this, awards this yeah. this 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 how it's do you like, navigate well that? how do i find this little th- how do i find this right this, exactly so that's right? what i'm asking you it's like Let, steve martin even, even if jerk, i right like i don't need any of this but i need like this little square like or when they win the when they win the award you know he's like well you don't win any of this but you like win this right here you know (laughs) (laughs) well that's what i'm trying to ask you let's say i want to plan a nice night for julia sure and i want to get a nice bottle of wine you're saying it's not as easy as just oh yeah i go to the store it's there's preparation to it it's okay what am i going to cook julia for dinner i'm going to cook a fish okay so now i have the knowledge of that what what kind of vibe do i want throughout the yeah but and then i go and i ask cooper or but it goes further than that what kind of fish are you cooking for julia are you cooking a fatty white fish? Are you going to grill it? Are you going to poach it? Are you going to like roast it? Is it going to be a red fish or like is it going to be salmon? And and what's the preparation? Because like generally the the rule of thumb is is like with white fish we're going to cook we're going to we're going to pair white wine right or any sort of fish we're going to cook we're going to pair white wine. But salmon actually does really well with like pinot noirs and gamays and even some more acidic reds. But now we take a really heavy, fatty white fish that we're like fire roasting or we're grilling or something. Now we can actually actually get into the, the red world once again. So like some more Bordeaux style wines as opposed to like, you know, Chardonnay. So you're saying Chardonnay I need blocks. to like put a lot of thought into the date and everything. Like I mean, that. if you want to like really <laughs> know what the hell you're talking about. Man, going on a date with you must be like pretty <laughs> special. <laughs> You've thought about everything. Well, once again, this was like, this is my, this is my history. Like I was a certified chef of wine arts. So the thing was, was like, not just to know about the front of the house, the wines that they were pouring, but I was also like a cook and a chef. Yeah. But see, I mean, I mean I'm curious to hear you define yourself as that because we spent the first hour we, did, we, could, we could barely get into the wine. We're talking about your whole life. It's amazing to me how much you've experienced and what you've been through. And that's obviously led you to where you are now. Do you identify now as a winemaker? or? A sh- oh, when people ask me who you are, I'm like, I'm a winemaker. Okay. Like, I don't say like, uh, I don't hesitate. For the longest time, I was like, uh, uh, I'm a surgical tech or I'm a cook. Like, no, I'm a, I'm a winemaker. This is this is who I am. This is my passion. This is what I'm going to do. We were talking earlier. Right now, I'm going through some stuff in my life, and I have a really good opportunity to stay here in Palisade because you know I just got hired on. Tell us about it. Yeah, yeah. Tell I just got, I just got hired on as the the sparkling winemaker for Carboy. That's amazing, man. Yeah, it's I'm really so excited. cool. Like, what a cool organization. What cool people to be with. Like amazing such, such location yes. in Palisade. Their rooftop. Yeah, man. Amazing views. Such forward vision, yeah. right? And the, the really cool thing about them is they continue to outgrow everything they start off with, right? So it's like 
to be part of an organization like that, like what a great outlook on life, right? But now I'm also dealing with my best friend, Miles, who um, was just diagnosed with a really aggressive metastatic like uh, tumor. Uh, he's a 13-year-old dog, and you know I don't know how long he has to live. It's it's saddening, but at the same time it's very like it's exciting because I'm not going to be kind of beholden to like my dog child anymore. Which I mean I would never give this up. He might live another two he three might, years. He might, dude. Mate. He might outlive me. I Who think knows? we're going <laughs> to taste him in your next vintage. <laughs> is what I would say. What I'm saying is, like, my goal was always, like, I've been with dogs and animals since I was, since I was a child. But yeah, you had a fucking own. iguana, dude. You're like a serious pet owner. When someone tells you they had a dog or a cat, it's like, okay, family pet. When someone's like, oh, I had an iguana, it's yeah. like, you know. Well, now I have seven hens running around in the backyard, which it's getting dark, and they're just dark, so I don't know where these four it baby girls dark. are. Like, they're, they're. They're somewhere. We'll have to after this. This we'll They're have to fine. go outside and find them. We'll go hunt them with a flashlight. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no. My goal was always like after my shit. What did I get my first dog? My my first dog on my own when I was like nineteen, twenty in the military, and I've so now thirty years. You can have a dog in the military. Well, I was yeah. So I just got. I, I mean, I was still deploying. So the gal I was dating would like would watch him or watch her or whatever. But I've I've and I've owned dogs on my own since I was nineteen or twenty, and here I am fifty. So I'm looking at like thirty, thirty-one years of owning my own dogs. You've never you haven't been without a dog in thirty-one years. I have years. not been without a dog or a cat or an animal in that long of time. And uh, I always told myself as soon as I was without a four-legged creature. I would just sell everything and travel the world for like two or three years. And like wherever like life took me, it's where I would go. I, I have enough money, you know, I have enough faith. And even if I didn't have the money, I still have the faith to know Which that. Which is the most important part. Exactly. I just, I just know I would end up where I'm supposed to be. All right. Well, we so. hope you stay here with us. Well, I hope I to mean, stay here too. you just got a new job. <laughs> You're starting your own label it sounds like you're writing your end of your history, but I hope that's not true because we need you here in Palisade. No, I feel like I'm You're just, part of the, the next generation of Palisade. I feel like I'm just starting to write the first chapter of my history. Like this, is, like everything else to this point has been the build up. It's sad to say that an aggressive form of cancer on a dog is like never like a good hand of cards to be dealt with. And, you know, I'll deal with it. No, um, but a 13-year-old dog is also... A dog that lives longer than most, I would yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. But what I'm saying is like... A Your other dog was... 17. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, dude. <laughs> You're like the dog whisperer. Yeah. It just gives me... My dog's seven, and I feel like I got a year or two left. <laughs> this whole thing, actually, it's 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 a very double-edged sword. It's bittersweet, but it also gives me the freedom to move about freely for this new position that I'm coming into, which is very exciting. Have you ever made sparkling before? I've done pet gnats, but no, I'm. I'm sure very... you told them you had made sparkling before. You lied. During no, the no, no, right? no. I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding. They're very new to the whole Charmant method, also, which is making a base wine, so making a, a dry wine, and then starting another another secondary fermentation, and then putting it under CO2, essentially. So you're starting a secondary fermentation and keeping that in there, and so it's just one of the methods of making a sparkling wine. And it's a very like new kind of style progressive. It's not really new, like in, in the, the realm of like the history of winemaking, but at the same time, like 
it's one of these new methods that's a lot quicker. It's a lot more advanced if you want to get to the way of sparkling wines, where instead of like force carbonating base wine or doing the a method champenois or me a traditional method, which is like starting the fermentation inside of a bottle and riddling it and whatever, you're actually starting the fermentation inside of a tank. So therefore the CO2 builds up inside the tank. And riddling is when you turn the bottles, all those racks that you see. So yeah, riddling. Champagne. Yeah, riddling. Right? Is, it's very labor intensive. Where oh, it's very, it's, it's, it's time consuming. It's basically a, a as I remembered, a rack on a slant where the top is pointed down, mm -hmm. and then you have to come and you turn the bases. Yeah, like right? you kind of like raise the like the base or the punt or the bottom of the bottle. You keep raising it and raising it, and you keep twisting it and twisting and it. And then with champagne, they shoot out the yeast, right? So eventually, you get to a point to where like that yeast plug builds in the neck because you only have a crown cap on, and then eventually you get to a point where like you pop it, that yeast plug shoots out, then you do your dosage, which is like a heat. refill. A little bit more sugar, yeah. a little bit more base wine, a little bit more yeast, and then you put your crown cork on, or your your yeah your your uh, not your crown cap, but your your actual cork in your cage, and then another fermentation takes place, and that's then amazing. that's the product. So it's a very time and in, in like inclusive thing, and it just costs a lot of money. And uh, so, are you studying like crazy now to prepare for this new job? Oh, absolutely. Or? I mean, like this is all brand new, and it's it's great because like I got put into a position to where like, this is a big deal. I mean, I think a lot of us in town, when we saw Carboy come in, were, like, just hesitant. And oh, then, another Denver Boulder company coming in? Well, it was, yeah, it was, it, was just, it was a very Palisade thing, and I was happy to see them come in here. Me and, too. Uh, yeah. And I think they brought some really cool energy to the Valley. And No disrespect to what Mount Garfield did before, but I feel like they elevated that space, Carboy, when they moved in. Well, you know, lot. Mount Garfield, like, met their their point. And yeah, I have no disrespect for right. them. I'm just saying no, exactly. I, the rooftop, the, they're expanding and exactly. they, in, in terms of selfishly thinking of Palisade, Carboy has a presence in Denver Boulder. So that Absolutely. is, that is a, a kind of a hook and line for people to come over who don't know much about Palisade. Exactly. Oh, Carboy opened a new place. What's that about? Let's go. So as a tourism, I well, selfishly think eh, that's a good The thing. coolest thing about Carboy is, is like they are, pretty much like digging themselves deep into the community that they're involved with. So it's not like this big company that came in and like, we're, we're this person, we're doing this and like, fuck everybody. Like, how can we make this happen? What can we do to like help all of you? And so it's, it's really quite the honor to be part of this program. And I like to like listen to this podcast at a much later date now having to start it with them and seeing how it progressed because like I'm super excited about how things are going. You should be. When will we actually taste your wines from Carboy? Um, not until next year, probably. See, this is what sucks about <laughs> winemaking. I want it now, Joe. Come on. I haven't made a thing for them yet. So 23, 23 would probably be my first harvest with them. Base wine production, all that stuff. So yeah. Well, I, I just have a, a final question for you. I know you got to go and We've almost gone three hours now. <laughs> who know? Who knew it? Throughout your early life, you talked a lot about changing up. You did things. You played sports for a couple months, got tired of it, this and that. You talked extensively about that. Is winemaking different for you? As far as changing things up? Well, I just mean you seem to be – I was like this a lot when I was little, I and I – 
I told you I was kind of a nerd and got made fun of. I was always called a poser, which was a term at the time that meant for someone that was doing something, but it wasn't really them. Right. The reason was, and that's honestly, I'll admit I'm a poser. I love to try new things, even if it's not for me. If I meet you and you're a skateboarder, I'm like, I want to skate. I want to try that. I'll come to the skate park with you and I'll try it out for an hour or two and probably look like a fool, but I want to experience it. I want to experience this and that. And I'll try a little bit of everything. And when you're older, that makes you interesting. When you're younger, it makes you a fake or a phony or at this point, a poser. poser. So I was trying to do a lot of little things and I would get tired of it and get on with it. And and it sounds like you were describing a lot of that to me where your dad was frustrated with you, where you would try something and not stick with it and move on. You went back and forth between nursing and cooking and nursing and cooking. Now, neither of those are a part of your life. So I'm just curious, what makes winemaking different for you? What You seem to have found your passion, and I want to know what it is about that. Well, I think everything that I did up to that point led me to winemaking, right? The posing, the back and forth, the posing, yeah, the uh, the chemistry. Like I said earlier, like the chemistry, the biology, uh, the artistry of cooking versus the medicine, right? Like there was structure in medicine to me. There were things that would make people live or die. There were things that just you couldn't question because it's just science. It's like do this. Right. It's science. A exists, do B. Right, exactly. And cures it. Yeah. Whereas cooking was one of those things where it was like, it was kind of freestyle. And I think the more chances you took, and the better you were at taking chances, the more serious you were taking. Otherwise, you'd just set up as a, as a Denny's cook. Well, that's what I'm saying. Sometimes. So some restaurants are totally about not taking chances. The whole thing with Plum Creek was the original tension was. No, we have a we have the Denny's. We know it works. Stop taking chances. Yeah, but I think I also walked in there because I I think I realized that I was walking into a dying place that needed a breath of life, like a breath of fresh air. I'm not saying I was the one that did it, but I felt like that was my mission there. Now at this point in my life, where I'm at, it's a really hard one because. I honestly feel like so comfortable and so at home in the in the role that I'm playing, right? Like I don't know, it's just, it's really it's a it's a it's just it's a tough thing. Like I've it's this has been such a growing pain and a growing lesson for me because for the longest time I felt like I had a home and I felt like I was like confident in where I was and I was structured in what I was doing. And I probably could have like stayed with Plum Creek my entire life and had just this inch of free willing and free like discovery. But at the same time, I was going to kind of stick to like the, 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 the remedy and the recipe. Right. But then over the past few months, I've had some situations and some real life lessons. And I always kind of figured like going into my fifties that I would be like, confident and comfortable and have all the answers and I really felt like that I had everything collapse on me right now and I'm kind of going through like my diamond stage because like pressure and heat is being applied right now for me to come out shining and more brilliant than ever I met you when you were at Plum Creek I get the frustration and everything yeah but I think that 
you have an opportunity now to create something really special. We were talking before this podcast. I'm going to call you out. You're like, oh, I'm nervous or this or that. <laughs> and I tell you, man, you're already rocking out. I've never created three wines that are amazing and on par with anything I've tasted in Palisade. Yeah. And I am excited to see what you do next. I don't want to sit here and say that I know it all because like, I'm absolutely the last person to know anything. If yeah, but we don't need know-it-alls. We just need people that are passionate. I Honestly, passion for me is better than knowing it all. If someone's passionate and they don't know it all, I'd take that versus someone who knows it all and is not passionate. Because someone who thinks they know it all, they don't try anything new. Nope. What can we expect from periphery sellers given carboys now? Are you going to continue as, as – you're going to do both, right? Yeah, yeah. It's really cool. I think it's kind of like this mix of the – the best of both worlds where I can actually work with like a really well, uh, well-known, well-liked, incredible established winery, especially like in a, a field that I never worked with to like learn something new. And these guys would admit it too, like the Charmant and all this, this whole program is, it, it's brand new to them. So I'm really happy to be with them on the ground level, like to build this up. We're hoping to not only take over the Colorado wine scene as far as like sparkling wine, but we want to go nationally, if not worldwide, with our sparkling wines. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I'm very confident that we can do that because the staff and the vision and the the ability of just all of us, it's all in place. Will that leave you enough time to do periphery? Absolutely. Okay. And we had this conversation and... They're very, very supportive of it, and they're excited. You know, I got to try them on the wines, and they were just super ecstatic and very supportive and surprised by what's actually happening over here on the Western Slope with those grapes. Okay, so in the future, we hope to see you on Airbnb experiences or something. But You know, that's super cool. Of, right? I, never th I never thought of that, and thank you for that, because, like, what, what, what a better way than to sell chosen experiences that I want to take part of than Airbnb because like I've I've had some of the best experiences with wines and cheeses and meats and cooking and everything else through Airbnbs. So. People are coming to Palisade <laughs> and they want things to do. I would advise you and everyone listening to get on Airbnb experiences. Showcase what you got. Yeah. And not something generic, something unique. And if you do it, you can charge forty bucks a tasting, but make it worth their while you know what i'm saying of course so how can people right now though buy your wine if they want locally locally they can actually reach out to me through peripheriesellers.com just send me a, a quick kind of email and let me know they want to meet up we can do that just kind of direct to consumer sales so i'm guessing they could do a tasting if they yeah we to. can well i I'd, I'd really like them to come in do a little cellar tasting with me. You got to do the cellar tasting, man. Exactly, exactly. 100%. Yeah, and then everything else, once again, after we get through this festival season, I'm going to open up online sales. It's going to be very limited. I'm hoping to actually do kind of like a wine club membership to where like we do like a few like allocations throughout the year. So the ones that sign on initially get like obviously like first priority to first releases to whatever is available. And then otherwise, we're just going to kind of build off of that. And we might get to a point where there's like a two or three year waiting list. So get on to it now. Buddy, yeah. we just did three hours. <laughs> Can you believe it? Are you going to post all three hours? Why not? <laughs> I love it, man. This should be unedited, this whole thing. Be careful what you wish for, buddy. No, honestly, like there's some... It's you on trial, not me. I'm yeah. just the journalist <laughs> interviewer. So it's great for me because it's Whatever. all on you. 
So all of you that are listening, thank you to Mr. McGuff. I thank you for your time and your interest. And honestly, you made this super easy. And I'm looking forward to everybody else that you host on this incredible cast that you're doing, man. Like, I'm really looking forward to what you're going to do. Well, and if we needed a part to edit out, there it is. Joe Flynn, (laughs) you're welcome anytime. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for coming on. Have a good night. See you soon. Bye. Terrain, flying high up once again. Got my crew sitting healthy and my boo living wealthy. Level 99, never settle in my mind. So I pedal and I climb up the pedestal and find almighty weapon. So I calm lightly step into the castle, satchel, tackled, wrestled down the corridor where I'm grounded through the floor. Round house into my core, down, out, and through the door. Sword down in my side. I gotta round up and ride. Face boss, break jaws till I take off. Face off, stop and swing my serious strike. This is it. Take the title, disappear in the night to the whole wide world. Got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the whole wide world. Slay the boss in the castle when we cross final battle. Then I walk out and travel to the whole wide world. Got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the whole wide world. Slay the boss in the castle.